How's that for a slice of fried gold? Are you thinking this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life. I'll be back. Just a flesh wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. I'm sorry, Ben. Well, hello, and welcome to Cinema Shock, the podcast exploring the stories behind your favorite cult and genre films. We do all the research so that you don't have to. We're the three guys that tell you everything you need to know about your favorite movies and the people who made them so that the next time you're caught up in a nerdy movie conversation, not only will you know what is going on, you might actually be the expert. I'm one of your hosts, Gary Horn. I'm another one of your hosts, film historian Justin Bishop. This is my gift, my curse. Who am I? I'm writer-comedian Mr. Todd A. Davis, and thank you for joining us for our look at the first entry of Sam Raimi's Spider-Man trilogy. Well, it ain't Fats Domino. (laughs) (laughs) That joke, if you read all the amazing Spider-Mans, like the first God knows how many, uh, Stanley uses that joke like about a hundred times. (laughs) <laughs> like it's like he'll bust in somewhere and the criminals are like oh god it's spider-man and he's like well it ain't just like some random six <laughs> Listen, if i know anything about the kids they really like a good fatch domino joke <laughs> I, I got a question for you guys so um spider-man in this movie he has li- these little like hair little f- things that come out of his fingers yeah. you know that helps him grab onto walls mm-hmm Two questions about that. One, assuming they're protruding through his gloves and that's helping him latch onto walls. So does he also have those on his toes and are they long enough to go through like the boots that he's wearing during his, his non-costume scenes? Because he, he's wearing Nikes at one point when he's going up a wall. Yeah. And also, do those hairs cover his entire body? <laughs> That's a, that's a very good question, Justin. Well, Gary, you're the you're the Spider-Man expert. You want to take this? Oh, is that right? Uh, yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I, back to the comics again. Literally, in like issue number four or five, he has little suction cup fingertips, which yeah. is super odd. I hate that. And I think they just kind of <laughs> walk away from that later. Yeah. But I do I do remember like when he first gets his powers in like you know at the very beginning and I think in those very early issues when he's got regular shoes on he has to take them off and he like ties the laces together and like slings them over his shoulder mm. so he can So they just ignored that in the movie. Yeah. And also well, if he's look, wearing his Spider-Man suit under his regular clothes is he also wearing his Spider-Man boots under his regular shoes? That's a good question as well. And yeah, what about the gloves? Question. Does he just keep those like in his pocket? Is is his mask like in his back pocket somewhere? For Peter Parker, it was really easy because he was a kid. He was a student. He ha- he always had a backpack on. So you can That's just true. the mask, the boots, the gloves, stuff mm-hmm. them in the backpack. And, you know, I think you do see him pulling his boots off at one point in this movie when he's going to save Mary Jane. Yes. Yes. From the, uh, the rapist guys. Yeah. Well, this costume is clearly made out of some kind of lycra or not. I don't even know if it's lycra. It's like some weird fucking material. So the fact that he, not only he made it as a high school kid. Who but, paid? For, who bankrolled that? 
who bankrolled yeah. it? Does he smell like shit because he's wearing it underneath his clothes at all? He's just just ungodly bo at all times. <laughs> welcome, welcome to New York. <laughs> it just blends in. That, Nobody that, notices. That's, that's what we don't know is that whenever you go to New York and you smell someone really bad, they're just a superhero. It could just be Spider Man. Yeah, it might be Spider Man. <laughs> well, anyway, so we spent you know the entirety of our last episode. Uh, which is the first episode of this series, discussing the decades of false starts and failed attempts to bring Spider-Man to the big screen. And we kind of felt like we needed to do that because all of those struggles needed to happen in order for the character to finally find cinematic success under the guidance of Sam Raimi. So along the road, there were some pretty bad ideas, some involving like Elton John, others involving giant man spider creatures. Uh, and there were some stifling budgetary constraints during the period when the character's rights laid with Canon Films. But all those things were just part of the character's journey because once Sam Raimi and David Kep got their chance to bring Spider-Man to life, they had decades of mistakes to look back on, to acknowledge, and to learn from, which allowed them to make the best possible Spider-Man movie. And that movie, the subject of today's episode, of course, was a massive success when it was released in 2002, effectively launching the era of comic book blockbusters. We are talking, of course, about Sam Raimi's Spider-Man. Who am I? You sure you want to know? If somebody told you I was just your average ordinary guy, not a care in the world, somebody lied. Great power comes great responsibility. This is my gift. Wow. It is my curse. Who are you? Who am I? I'm Spider-Man. You and I are not so different. We choose to talk about movies. You choose to listen to our spoilers. And they found us amusing for a while, the listeners of this podcast. Those teeming masses exist for the sole purpose of, of lifting the few exceptional podcasts onto their shoulders. Cinema Shock, we're exceptional. Well, we could stop recording right now, but we're offering you a choice. Join us. Imagine what we could accomplish together, what we could create. Or we could spoil, cause the ruination of countless innocent film nerds and selfish episodes again and again until we're all dead. Is that what you want? Think about it, listener. That was the most complex spoiler warning we've done yet on this show. Yeah, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it was a lot. It was a lot. <laughs> Based on one of the goofiest scenes from this entire movie, yeah. uh, visually, from a visual standpoint, Defoe's great in it, but visually, yeah. like him just kind of leaning on the thing, uh, yeah, and like talking odd. in that in that dumb looking suit. <laughs> yeah. with his eyes exposed i believe because his little eyes flip up in that scene yeah yeah yes. the yeah the things come back yeah absolutely it's it is weird so if you have not listened to it uh i would highly recommend checking out our last episode because we give a lot of background information on that uh, in that episode on the development of a spider-man movie far more than we can really recount here one thing I feel like we left out, though, in the last episode, I don't remember talking about this. And if we did, I apologize, was that in the 90s, in an alternate timeline, there is a Spider-Man movie with Michael Jackson as Peter Parker. Oh, we did not come across that bit of information. Do you have more? <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> per Stan Lee, he knew Michael and Jackson had approached him about wanting to buy the rights to Spider-Man for a movie. He said at first, initially, he didn't say, I specifically want it 
to be Spider-Man, but he said he got that impression from him. And so he thought Stan was the guy that could make that happen. And Lee told him, I don't think it's going to be just that easy to go and get that, but I'm either way, I'm not the guy that can help you out uh, with that. So he said, Michael Jackson left the meeting saying, all right, well, I'm just going to buy Marvel then. And, um, so, <laughs> all right, then. <laughs> so according to a later interview, I found with Michael's nephew, uh, Taj Jackson, that's facts. He said Michael Jackson was super into Marvel, knew all of the characters, and knew that Marvel was broke and went into talks to buy Marvel from what? them. Can you imagine? <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> he, man. Said, he said the brothers were in on it and talking about it and stuff, but something got shut down. He wasn't 100% sure what exactly happened, but that all got crushed but apparently uh, he said also that yeah michael was super into playing peter parker like he was gonna buy marvel and he was gonna make a movie i mean not only is that bizarre casting but by the 90s i mean michael jackson was far too old to play peter parker (laughs) (laughs) he would have been like well into his 30s by that point yeah super weird uh on another side note just uh randomly while i was looking for that i did find an interview with david Hayter who wrote the screenplay for X-Men, and he says he was there when Michael Jackson came in and read for P- Professor X. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I need that audition video to be on the internet. I, I, need, oh. I need to see that audition video. Wow. But yeah, Michael Jackson is Spider-Man. Had to mention that. Apparently, he's a huge Three Stooges fan, according to that interview with this. Wow, him too, and Raimi so would have really gotten along. I know. I was like, I guess he was just a little early. he should have auditioned for sam uh i mean i have a feeling he would have had a heart even if he had bought marvel by that point the rights had been sold off to other people so he would have also had to like had a legal battle to even even if he owned marvel to get the rights to spider-man would have been very difficult uh i mean that's what that's one thing we talked about in our last episode is is that the rights to spider-man the character to make a movie of spider-man they were like really complicated by this point uh, due to various financial deals that Marvel struck in order to help them uh, stay afloat because they were broke, like you just said. But by the end of our last episode, uh, two important things had happened. One, Avi Arad had become the head of Marvel Studios. I think it was still called Marvel Films at that point. Uh, And two, Sony Pictures had acquired the theatrical rights to the character. And once that happened, it was full speed ahead on developing a film. Now, uh, Avi Arad... Are you saying a rod or a rod? How are you saying it? I think I've been, I don't know how I just said it, but I've been saying a rod. Okay. Avi a rod. I looked it up. (laughs) All right, good. I did not. I should have done that. I realized that now as I say it. Uh, Avi a rod, he does deserve his flowers. I mean, that brother knocked on a lot of doors. Uh, Per him, I found this one quote in an interview. He says, none of the studios that I talked to had any interest in Spider-Man. You name a studio, I went to them and they turned it down. They thought, this is an old property. Uh, It's not going to work. I said, obviously, I felt this was one of the biggest properties there was out there. So I started just kicking doors down. I told them Spider-Man alone is worth a billion dollars. And little did I know at the time, I was low. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. He Uh, said, according to some of the execs, like they were working at the studios, the immediate math that you deal with is like, you know, you got to know how much it'll cost. And as a reminder for Sony, it was like $7 million, uh to get the rise. 5% of the profits go to Marvel. 50% of the merch goes to Marvel. Uh, and then you got to figure out how to make the thing, how much that's going to cost, and then how many butts and seats 
you can get. And he said he knew that, but most of the studios were like, a superhero movie is not going to cut it. It's just not going to do that anymore. But thanks to his door kicking, uh, as amazing or spectacular as Spider-Man is, see what <laughs> I did there? According to him, the the real hero that sold the movie was Peter Parker, finally. So from like Sony... Uh, Amy Pascal says, uh, I've had a quote from her in an interview. She said, we didn't have a lot of these kinds of characters, but in those days, to be honest, I didn't really think about things that way. You know, nobody talked about IP. Nobody said content. Nobody said you need superhero movies. People didn't talk like that, but we fell in love with Peter Parker. I'm not a comic book person. I wasn't thinking, oh my God, all my life, I've wanted to make comic book movies. What I was thinking is this is a really fantastic character. And I know not nowadays people just know that, but that wasn't common knowledge back in the day for yeah. non-nerds. Peter yeah. is a brilliant, regular kid, and he's already worked forever in one medium. So it just seems obvious now, but I just thought it was kind of interesting just how people's minds were back then. Yeah, I mean, nerd culture has become mainstream now, but that wasn't necessarily the case back in you know the late 90s or so, or mid to late 90s when all this was happening. So they get, uh, you know, they're ready to start developing this movie. So obviously your first order of business is what? Let's find a director or write a script, you know, whatever, <laughs> but let's find a director. Uh, and boy, there were a lot of directors on Sony's wish list before they ever got to Sam Raimi. Uh, they talked to Roland Emmerich, Ron Howard, Tony Scott, Chris Columbus, Barry Sonnenfeld, Tim Burton, Michael Bay, Ang Lee, Jan DeBont, M. Night Shyamalan. Uh, like they talked to every like big director that they could find. And all of these directors passed on the project for one reason or another. I mean, I don't know the reasons behind all of them. Sometimes it's probably scheduling stuff. Sometimes it's probably like they're just not interested in making a Spider-Man movie. Uh, Chris Columbus ended up doing a little movie called Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone instead. So, you know, he didn't make a bad decision there. Uh, Tim Burton had a meeting with Sony, but uh, told the studio that he, he was more of a DC guy. So he didn't get the job because of the, he's like, yeah, f- fuck Marvel, I guess. Uh, yeah, geez Louise. <laughs> I had uh, some of the some of those names you rattled off, I'd be interested to see like what they could do with the character. I mean, we've seen what Ang Lee did with the Hulk. Um, yeah, well, I, that's why I, I said some of those names. I uh, <laughs> I do. I mean, Ron Howard's would have been fine and safe and pedestrian, but oh, it would have made money. Tony Scott's would have been pretty pretty cool. Roland Emmerich would have destroyed New York City. Uh, Michael Bay would have destroyed New York City. <laughs> that's how it would have gone yeah <laughs> uh david fincher was actually a top contender for a while like he was very close to getting it uh, he had actually previously worked with spider-man producer laura ziskin on fight club but he was adamant about adapting the night when stacy died instead of the origin story which is what the studio preferred yeah i actually ended up in a rabbit hole on this one with fincher because i was su- super curious about it and uh he just wanted to put the origin story basically in the opening credits and right. just kind of blow through it really quick. Ironically, that would be the only acceptable way to do Spider-Man's origin these days. Yeah. But <laughs> I mean, they didn't even bother in the Marvel, the MCU. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and I and I love David Fincher, but it almost seems like he was super into the same thing like the Cannon Boys were, and he wanted to do weird stuff. And uh, teenage Peter Parker gets bit by a spider was like too weird or a different kind of weird. Not what he was super into. Uh, he had, I found an interview with him talking about it. And he said, uh, quote, my impression of what Spider-Man could be is very different from what Sam did. I think the reason he directed that movie was because he wanted to do the Marvel comic superhero. Well, yeah, 
Fitch. That's what he yeah, that's, that's it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, you can't sneak one past old David Fincher. <laughs> He's on top of it, folks. He goes on to say, he says that quote, I was never interested in the Genesis story. I couldn't get past a guy getting bit by a red and blue spider. It was just a problem. It was not something that I felt I could do straight faced. <laughs> then just I, don't do a Spider-Man movie, David Fincher. <laughs> <laughs> he said i wanted to start with gwen stacy and i wanted to kill gwen stacy so the dead i guess he says uh so what was going to happen is the title sequence of the movie that i was going to do was going to be a 10 minute basically a uh, music video an opera which was going to be one shot that took you through the entire peter parker backstory uh it was a very different thing it wasn't a teenager story it was much more of a guy who settled into being a freak i mean that sounds like a David Fincher movie, but may, sometimes a director's sensibilities, even a director who is really good, and I think David Fincher is really, really good, sometimes they're, a director's sensibilities, no matter how good they are, don't mesh with a particular material. Like like Toby Hooper, I think, you know, he was one of the guys who was attached to Spider-Man for a while, or, or not maybe not officially attached, but, you know, came close with canon. And I love Toby Hooper, but I cannot see his sensibilities working with this character in this story. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and don't either. forget too. By the way, it's worth mentioning. Uh, the goat Steven Spielberg was uh, told it was his if he wanted it, but he shot it down. He had no uh, interest. Yeah, I found an interview with him in uh, Total Film, and he he could have apparently just been all up at all your favorite franchises. Uh, his quote <laughs> here says, uh, "Well, how much more success do I want? I've had enough to last me three more lifetimes." I <laughs> it seems like he's being very generous, but he's also pumping is he's that's a, stroking that's, his a, that's just called a humble brag right there <laughs> it's like, i turned down harry potter and i turned down spider-man two movies that i knew would be phenomenally successful but they offered no challenge to me i would have been shooting ducks in a barrel slam duck i don't need my ego reminded and i don't need to race anybody to make the biggest hit movie anymore well, i'm just trying to tell stories that i can keep interested in for the two years it takes to write direct and edit them Hey, I mean, that's that's not a bad way to approach being a director once you're at Steven Spielberg's point, though. Just do shit yeah. that is interesting to you, which is why how we got West Side Story and The Fablemans, both incredible movies, didn't make any money. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, but right. they're Steven Spielberg movies, and they're two of the best movies that have come out in the last couple of years, uh, and nobody saw them. Right. But, you know, at this point in his career, it kind of doesn't matter. Like, he can just still keep – he's still going to keep getting – uh, you know, a blank check, no matter what he does. So, yeah, I mean, that's basically what he said. I'm good for like three lifetimes. So yeah. what what you got? I don't need Spider-Man. <laughs> well, eventually it was producer Amy Pascal who went after Sam Raimi. So Raimi is a lifelong Spider-Man fan. He wanted to direct the film. He really wanted to direct the film, but he kind of considered himself a long shot, having never directed anything even close to the size and scope of what a Spider-Man movie would be. Uh, of course, we all know, if you've been listening to the show, then you know that this is not the first time that Raimi had circled a comic book franchise in his career. If you recall from our previous Sam Raimi series, he had pursued The Shadow and, and Batman in the past. And when he, he was unable to get the rights to those characters, he ended up creating a superhero of his own with Darkman. I mean, so, the dude had, has something like 25,000 comics in his collection or something. Raimi does. Yeah. So he was brought in for an interview with the higher ups at Sony, which included Pascal, Arad, and Laura Ziskin, all of whom were impressed with his presentation. He was clearly passionate about the character. He clearly cared about Spider Man and what made the character work. Uh, he ended his interview by telling them a true story about how, when he was a kid 
his parents hired a local artist to paint a Spider-Man mural on his bedroom wall as a birthday gift. So like, this is a guy who clearly was truly a fan of the character. Yeah, you you actually sent me the article, the Variety article about the uh, 20, 20 years later thing. And they actually interview all the people that were there. And uh, they talk about this particular thing. And uh, so for that interview, they... They said uh, the first interview was actually in like the fall of 1999. He heard, uh, you know, that they were doing this thing. So he went to uh, pitch. He put on his old black suit, went in there, said, I can direct Spider-Man. He came out. He said he got a call from his agent later, quote, my agent, Josh Don, and said, they want to be honest with you, Sam. There's about 18 directors they'd rather have than you on a list. And Ramey says, well, I told him, okay, I'm number 19. And uh, <laughs> he said he uh, finally got the meeting, though. And when he went in, it was a room that included Sony Pictures CEO John Kelly, Columbia Pictures Chair Amy Pascal, Marvel Studios Chief Avi Arad, uh, Sony Film Executive Matt Talmach, and the film's producer Laura Ziskin. So he said uh, to break the ice, basically, he starts going in all, all these things he loves about Spider-Man. Uh, you mentioned the painting, uh, the mural that his parents had uh had done for him on his childhood bedroom wall. He said he talked a lot about how Spidey's alter ego, Peter Parker, was the first time a nerdy little kid like him could actually see himself as a superhero and not just a goofy sidekick. Uh, he's not idealized. He's from a broken home. He's not great looking. Uh, he talked about how Stan Lee gave life to that character whose fuck-ups and failures are just as important, if not more so, than anything else the spider powers do for him. And according to... Sony exec Talmic, it was going amazing. And then, quote, all of a sudden, Sam just stops talking, looks at his watch, stood up and says, well, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate <laughs> you having me in. And then he just left. Yeah, I, I heard I heard about this. He, somebody had apparently told him that he only had an hour. <laughs> yeah, he said uh, per, per Sam, quote, he said uh, he, he had been told he, it was going to be an hour. He said, I was very aware of how they didn't want me. And I really didn't want to overstay my welcome. <laughs> Oh, he just I, left. I love Sam Raimi. <laughs> <laughs> I really do. I've been watching interviews with him on the set of Spider-Man. And I mean, I know we watched a lot of interviews with him in our last series, but I just love him as like a just a like a guy. He's just, he's just such a nice, sweet man, it seems like, and, until it's time to, you know, torture poor Bruce Campbell. <laughs> but, but that's all out of love, you know. Uh, uh, but they to Toby says, sorry, to Toby says in the uh, commentary that he loved Bruce Campbell, but Bruce Campbell came up to him and just like on the, I think the first day of shooting that he had was the wrestling match stuff. So Bruce Campbell was there mm -hmm. and um, Bruce Campbell came up and said, Hey, listen, Sam's cool, but he really is. He likes, he likes to get involved and he's going to, he's going to put you through it. So just, you know, don't take fair, it personal. Fair warning. Fair warning. <laughs> I love that. I love that Bruce gets a little cameo in this movie. He gets to name Spider-Man in this movie. He also uh, says that he is the only person to defeat Spider-Man because I think it's in Spider-Man three where he's the maitre d' and doesn't allow him into the restaurant, you know? <laughs> so right. Oh no, it's uh it's in the second one. He's, is, that the, he, is that part two? Yeah. He doesn't let him into the theater. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. So anyway, uh, Amy Pascal would say of that, you know, of that interview, of that uh, pitch that Raimi made, she would later say that, you know, Raimi had everything we were looking for. He was incredibly stylish. He had tons of heart and he's a total Spider-Man geek. 
Yeah. According to folks that were actually in that meeting, Sam was just totally different than anybody they'd ever talked to uh, about the, the, the job. Uh, and, and oddly, he just got what initially sold them on buying the damn thing in the first place. Like we talked about uh, per Amy Pascal, she says uh, a lot of people came in, talked about camera angles, creating cameras, new kind of stuff to shoot the swinging stuff like that. Avi Arad said some of them were immensely excited, but they took it from the point of view that they know what to do already. So just give me the money, leave me alone. And I'll make a great movie. Uh, which, by the way, if you listen to this podcast, you know that that sounds like they've never made a movie before <laughs> um, because we know that it ain't going to happen, especially right. with this. But Arad basically said he was immediately sold. He said Sam didn't come in talking about money. He loved this character and he was the guy who needed to make it. And uh, what stilled it, according to Pascal, she said, quote, he came in and said, this is a soap opera about a boy who loves a girl. And that's what I want to focus on. Mm -hmm. And John Kelly and her said, they looked at each other and said, well, that's the movie we want to make. Yeah. I mean, that's the first line of dialogue in the movie. Like when you get Peter Parker's voiceover, he says that this is a, you know, I don't have the exact quote here, but he's basically like, this is a story about a girl, you know, and, and it sets it up as a character based story immediately with that, you know, uh, which you don't get a lot from these types of movies. But it also, I mean, even in looking at, you know, the more current Marvel stuff, as opposed to other big franchise things out there, uh, they they do tend to focus more on the characters, which has always been their strong suit. Yeah, you mean Marvel in general? Marvel in general is what yeah, I'm saying. Yeah, 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 yeah. sure. So Spider-Man's script was written by David Kep. Uh, David Kep is a name that you've seen on the screen a lot of times. Uh, by this point in his career, you know, this is 2002 when this movie comes out. By this point, he had already written some just absolute bangers. He wrote Toy Soldiers, a movie that I love. Uh, Death Becomes Her, Panic Room for David Fincher. Uh, Jurassic Park. Yeah, he wrote Jurassic Park. I mean, based on the novel, but he wrote the script for Jurassic Park. He has worked with Brian De Palma several times. Uh, first on Carlito's Way, then on Mission Impossible and Snake Eyes. Uh, and an kind of odd Raimi connection he also wrote the shadow <laughs> that eventually nice. did get made uh, I mean it's not all roses not everything on his career is like a classic I mean the, the shadow is not exactly a classic but he also wrote you know Jurassic Park the Lost World the second one which is you know not great uh, and he wrote Kingdom of the Crystal Skull like two of like the worst sequels that Spielberg's ever done <laughs> those two movies but uh, he also wrote that terrible Tom Cruise mummy movie that came out a few years ago with Russell Crowe remember that one Oh yeah, that that now that movie actually has quite a few Star Trek connections, uh, but that's a story for episode one hundred of the Computer Resume podcast. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. Wait, you're talking about the Mummy on on your Star Trek podcast? I I mean I don't want to let too much out of the bag. Oh, but, you know, yeah, yeah, a okay. little bit, yeah. Okay, <laughs> I mean I know Sophia Butella is in a Star Trek movie and in the Mummy, but that's the only one I got. Yep, that's all I there's got. A, there's a little, there's a little more to it than that, but okay, yeah. Well, I guess we'll have to listen to your, <laughs> your stupid podcast. Tom. <laughs> hey, I was wondering hey, if he was going to follow uh, through hey, with the stupid. You look like he hesitated. Uh, just, Justin, <laughs> Justin, can I use that quote on like an image or something? I guess oh yeah, you can, use, you can use the audio. <laughs> nice. I guess we'll have to listen to your stupid podcast, <laughs> Justin Bishop, Cinema Shock. <laughs> Oh, man. Uh. 
Uh, also, he wrote Stir of Echoes, which may be underrated. I remember really liking that movie forever ago. So. Stir, yeah, he also he's directed a couple things too. Stir, um, Stir of Echoes, I thought was really good, but he also directed uh, what's it called? A Secret Window, right? Secret Window yeah, with Johnny yeah. Depp, based on the Stephen oh, King yeah. story. Uh, he okay. he directed that one. I think he's directed a couple of things, but I I know specifically that that's one that comes to mind. Uh, more recently, he, I mean, he, he's written a lot of other stuff. Like he, more recently, he wrote um, the Soderbergh movie that came out last year called Kimmy. Did you guys see that? It was like set during the pandemic. Oh, I think yeah, it was straight about, to HBO. Uh, I don't but think I saw that. Isn't it it's, about like a, a like a like an Amazon dot? That yeah, like, yeah, okay, yeah. yeah it's I, really I the trailer. It looks cool. It's really good. Really good. Yeah. Highly, highly recommend it. He did. Uh, he should have left with uh, Kevin Bacon too, which was like basically stir of echoes i think yeah, <laughs> but he directed that one yeah yeah that's right um the he he you know i i read a lot with him just to get his take he seems like he came on like a little before sam raimi like just as far as getting to do some stuff because uh in one interview he does talk about that mummy stuff it's kind of interesting to talk about maybe one day we'll get to it but the uh uh just talking about working on big franchises with big right. movie stars and stuff like that but uh uh the difference for him at this time he says when he came on a spider-man was he felt it felt dangerous to him he said uh the last superhero really at the time when he was on uh when he got signed on was the second batman he mm. said uh that nobody was certain anymore about anything or, or i'm sorry the last good superhero film is what he said. Did he start writing this in 1993? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think he was saying the last good superhero film is the second Batman, mm-hmm. uh, which was not. Said, and, and I mean that's that's accurate, unless yeah. I mean, you could count like the Crow and stuff like that. But he was probably specifically referencing like more mainstream type sh- stuff. superheroes. Yeah, Marvel yeah, DC yeah. superhero kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah, he said, uh, quote, superhero movies have fallen on hard times. They weren't making any kind of cultural connection. And there'd been a number of ones out there, but they were cheap and kind of shitty. Uh, he said, uh, <laughs> but during the whole development process, he talks about how Blade X-Men came out uh, and it started to pick up for him because it was like off the hills of the Matrix. And so it felt like stuff was getting more intriguing uh, to do. And uh, he said, quote, uh, Spider-Man was a job I was up for, very much wanted. I had loved Spider-Man when I was a kid, and it was clearly great material for a movie. The studio was really clear that nobody's getting this job handed to them, so you got to come in and impress us. So I had to basically audition. I read all the comics. I did as much prep work as I could. uh, And I came in with, like, poster boards, and I pitched my ass off. And he's like, I got the job. Uh, Never underestimate the power of office products, he says. Uh, (laughs) So... But he says this big pitch was basically, uh, he, he said, it should take a really long time for Peter Parker to become Spider-Man. It he's does. I gonna, mean, it's a good 45 minutes or so before you see him in the costume in the movie. Yeah, he says it's it's he's not going to have that outfit for 45 minutes. And that's okay. It's a powerful origin story, and we really need to stretch that out. He said, he told him, the other thing is, the couple is not going to get together at the end. They have to end up apart, because that's romantic. Uh, and he said, and that Sony was willing to embrace both those things, I thought showed they had some nerve too, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, because he was like traditional thinking at that time was going to be page 10. He's a superhero and the end, everything's fine. So we got to do something different if we want this to work. 
Yeah, I mean, they to, to his credit, they do. The movie starts moving immediately. Like, like uh, Peter gets bitten by the spider within the first 10 minutes of the movie, I think. You know, yeah. and, and it's very, very quick. And so even though you don't see him in costume and he isn't technically Spider-Man until, you know, 45 minutes in, the ball is rolling immediately. So it's not like you're, it's not like they're dragging you along or anything. You're, you're fully immersed in the Spider-Man story. He just hasn't got a name and a costume yet. Although, you know, Kep gets sole credit for writing the film, but this screenplay did go through a lot of drafts and had a lot of different writers' hands on it. Uh, prior to him coming along and even after he came along uh, his script borrowed a lot of elements from James Cameron's script or his scriptment that he had written including the organic web shooters uh, and the villains which were Electro and, and Sandman at the time when Kep rewrote the script he replaced those villains with Dr. Octopus and the Green Goblin and it wasn't until much later in the development process that Doc Ock was removed and put on reserve for a possible sequel, which was a change that was made at Raimi's insistence because he felt that the surrogate father-son theme between Norman Osborn and Peter Parker would be more interesting. It's honestly a really great, it's a really great uh, vein to tap for, yeah. for storytelling. I think that's it, wonderful. It's, it's a really cool element of this movie that I don't know that it ever really struck me before viewing it this time because I haven't watched this movie in a very long time. Uh, but this time it really struck me how like, oh, Norman like seems to like Peter a lot more than he likes his own son. <laughs> and, yeah, and, there's, know, there's, there's, there's super weird triangles like, you know, you got the Peter loves MJ, but MJ's with Harry and Harry really wants his father's love, but his father loves Peter. And it's mm -hmm. like it's it's kind of interesting. And I never thought about that until watching it this last hundred times yeah. either. But the <laughs> the other thing, too, is what's weird is it just hit me now hearing you say that is that it's weird that they were going to go with Electro and Sandman first, because those seems like they would be harder characters to pull off on screen yeah. than I mean, as we've seen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So that particular change, though, removing Doc Ock and just focusing on Green Goblin, that was made when a writer named Scott Rosenberg was brought on to rewrite the script. Uh, Rosenberg, he was a guy, he had written a few movies before this, most notably probably Con Air. He had written a few years prior to this. Nice. Uh, so naturally, his draft... Uh, of the script also added several new action sequences. That's kind of what he was brought in to punch it up as an action movie. I kind of mentioned this, some of it last episode, but uh, I, I thought it was funny. I was reading all these David Kep interviews and he even mentions the James Cameron script. And uh, he said, quote, he really was pushing the metaphor of adolescent sexual development really far. There's a great moment where Peter wakes up in bed with web strands all over himself. It was like, <laughs> wow, I don't, <laughs> I don't know that we could do the wet dream thing, but it's kind of funny. <laughs> I mean, it's not like it's not like they shy away from it in this movie. I mean, you've got Peter finding weird hairs suddenly on his body when he wakes up in the morning. Uh, you him shooting white goop out of his body uh, <laughs> all right. of a sudden. Uh, there was a originally there was a uh, scene in the script that they cut. They, they never filmed it like he discovers his, his web shooters like in a bathroom like he's in a bathroom stall and he's like he sees this like oozing it oozing out of a slit in his wrist and he kind of squeezes it and it shoots out so it's like uh that's kind of like peter's jerking off in the bathroom is what's happening right now. <laughs> <laughs> but i mean even in this movie you know there's a scene where he's he's learning to use his web shooters when he's in his bathroom in his bedroom and Aunt yeah. May comes and locks on the door. Yeah, I thought and of he's that. like he's like really gets really kind of nervous and like 
Aunt May, I'm not dressed. I'm just exercising. Like that's 100% Sam Raimi doing a Peter jerking off joke. I mean, yeah. that's, oh, what, yeah. that's what's going yeah. on right there. So they didn't <laughs> sure. exactly, sh- they, they weren't maybe as like blatant about it as the James Cameron skip- script might've been, but they don't exactly shy away from the whole puberty me- metaphor in this movie at all. <laughs> yeah. And he's not knocking Cameron, by the way, in the same interview, he, he says, uh, I have another quote from here. He says that even just the fact that Cameron took this seriously was a big deal for everything. He said, oh, yeah. I think it legitimized it in people's minds, not least of all, probably Sony. Mm. Um, yeah. What I think is cool too, is that for both Ramey and Kep, a big thing here is the real deal story, not insidery. The, the story, like they believe the story has enough gravitas without being afraid to treat it seriously. I found another great Ramey quote. Uh, he said, I wanted to make sure we were not making an in on the joke thing with the audience presentation. For me, there is no joke. I don't want to be safe as a filmmaker saying, I know this is goofy, but let's pretend it isn't. I never wanted to have that separation for me and the material or assume that the audience had it. There is no safe place. They're simply just believing, believing that Peter Parker exists and investing wholly into the heart and matters of his soul and sharing that drama with the audience. So as production neared, Laura Ziskin hired uh, another screenwriter, an Oscar-winning screenwriter named Alvin Sargent. He was running to polish up the script's dialogue. And uh, it's, it's interesting. So you've got, I mean, I already named three different writers that are working on it after Sony is fully developing this movie, you know. But, you know, Columbia, and I apologize because I will sometimes say Columbia and sometimes say Sony during the course of this episode. Uh, they're the same company. <laughs> uh, yeah, Columbia yeah. Columbia is owned by Sony. So, so I, I realized like in my notes that sometimes I wrote it as Columbia because it's Columbia Pictures, a Sony Pictures company or something like that or a Sony company. So uh, they're they're the same thing. <laughs> tomato tomato you know anyway columbia gave the wga the writers guild a list of four writers for the final script that was uh, rosenberg sergeant and cameron uh, along with david kep and the other three actually all voluntarily relinquished sole credit to david kep that that sort of uh that doesn't really happen all that much of people just kind of like yeah i don't need my name on this gigantic film that's about to come out i mean they got paid well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, you know, but it's, you know, sometimes they, that's not enough. Sometimes they want the name on there. I also read, uh, speaking of what your name on there, I also read, uh, Ivan Raby did some uncredited script work too, really? like some doctoring on the, on the script. Nice. Uh, you know, he likes to get his hands dirty on some Sam Raby yeah. stuff. Yeah. Uh, well, and also Ted Newsom who had written that, uh, script for, canon back in the day not the man spider bone but the one that stan lee commissioned remember we talked about that one yeah. uh the one that ha- that was going to have john cusack as as peter parker he claimed that a lot of elements of david kept script and james cameron's used stuff from his script and there's a whole article about it that is is way too much for us to get into today but uh incredibly interesting uh, story about how he he basically had to, was like battling with the WGA to try to get credit on it. Uh, it's it's very, I mean, very very complicated. Just as complicated as everything has been with this character getting made into a movie so far. Yeah, and and I'm I'm gonna you know speaking of way too much for us to get into. I'm gonna I'm gonna get in the weeds for just a second, and I'm sorry. I know I'm talking a lot more, but I love this movie and I love this character, and I and I just have to say this 
Another thing we need to mention, because we are the guardians of film history here at Cinema Shock, <laughs> and true. this is worth talking about for just a second. I have to get this in and then I'll let Justin do his thing. Alvin Sargent and Laura Ziskin are as important to this story as anybody else, because Laura is from everything that you'll ever read or hear about when people talk about this movie that actually were involved <laughs> in it. Uh, she was one of the most hands-on producers on the film and super supportive. And yeah. Uh, Alvin Sargent is her lover. Oh, that I did not. Yeah, know. yeah, he's shooting his own webs, isn't he? Oh, well, he was just <laughs> waiting for the opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> but, but but seriously, these two have been together since the '80s, I think, and they're gonna work on this whole franchise, so they're yeah. important. Alvin Sargent will be writing the sequels and the movies of the next franchise too. So. Keep him in mind because we can talk more about him on another episode. But I wanted to talk about Laura Ziskin for just a second because I've been reading all about her and she's amazing and deserves a minute because I know a lot of people who love movies maybe know her name, but the more I learn about her, she's super underappreciated and nothing happens without her. Mm -hmm. um, you remember like Irvin Shapiro from the Sam Raimi series we did before. Sam Raimi gets lucky with finding powerful people that, will back him up no matter believe what. in him yeah yeah and laura ziskin she so a little background she she started as a producer's assistant all the way back on like a star is board the original a star is born uh which alvin Sargent did uncredited script the original a star is born or the 70s a star is born oh i'm sorry the 70s a star okay. is born because I, <laughs> I, I was gonna say she is not that old let's <laughs> dude she's super old <laughs> talking about the chris christopherson version of yeah, the star is chris born. christopherson okay. version <laughs> But she's who a lot of people in the industry, the more I read about her, uh, will say was maybe the first woman producer they remember hearing about. Uh, she's responsible for putting together a lot of the breakthrough movies for people like Nicole Kidman, Julia Roberts on Pretty Woman, Kevin Costner. Uh, she was one of the first women, along with uh, the before mentioned Amy Pascal, uh, Sherry Lansing, and her best friend, uh, Lauren Schuller Donner, to really occupy positions of power in the movie industry. Uh, Lauren Schuller Donner, obviously, uh, also the wife of Richard Donner, who made Superman, who you can see the influence of on this movie. Uh, also a producer of the X-Men movies. Anyway, we'll see Ziskin pop up for sure in the future. She's former president of Fox 2000, moved along, got a high spot in Sony. She was known for getting movies done the right way, uh, especially the ones where a lot of other people in the studio won't understand what they're dealing with. Back in the 90s, she started getting her rep because she, she got a rep for being tough because she went toe-to-toe -to -toe with guys like Bill Murray during the making of What About Bob. Uh, she comes from a time where women were not taken seriously in their spots. And I think that she learned to stick up for weird movies, filmmakers, and ideas that people would have otherwise dicked around with and not as culty of stuff as you think. It's just stuff that you accept as part of Hollywood. Now, like in 97, there was a cool story about her being super excited about movies, like as good as it gets and hope floats and the studio at the time was not excited about it. There was a story about her being in a meeting and the studio guys were just like, this fucking sucks. And she like stood up, I brought her to the middle of the thing. It was like, excuse me, all of you, this is not a movie for you. You don't need to get it. I love it. I'm the audience and I'm who you're marketing to. <laughs> and, uh, 
And it wasn't just like movies appealing to more women. She'd go on to do the same thing. Like she pulled Terrence Malick out of a 20 year hiatus to do the thin red line. Mm -hmm. uh, she made sure fight club happened when a lot of people were trying to fuck around with it. Uh, she's as big a part of Spider-Man getting done as anyone. Uh, there's countless meetings and battles that we're not even going to get to discuss with her making sure that Sam Raimi got to be the guy who got to make this movie and do it his way. Anyway, that's motherfucking Laura Ziskin. And uh, <laughs> she, she has an arc during this series. So I wanted to establish her now because she deserves it. Nice. Yes. So there was a point during the development of the film when, uh, and I don't know at what point this happened, but sometime while, while Spider-Man was being developed, there was a uh, leak, the script uh, leaked out. And there were some very vocal diehard Spidey fans who were unhappy with some of the changes that the script made. Uh, this is, I mean, I've never heard of comic book nerds being uh, nitpicky, but they're usually happened. the most accepting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they were unhappy with some of the changes that were made, such as uh, Peter being bitten by a genetically engineered spider, as opposed to a radioactive spider. Uh, they fucking nerds. <laughs> <laughs> ah! This is the funniest side. You can find all of these scripts online and the uh, title page of David Kep's draft of the screen uh, screenplay says uh, the following. Uh, this material is the exclusive property of Columbia Pictures Entertainment. Unauthorized transfer, photocopying, or reading of this material will result in the growth of large yellowy pustules on your fingertips and hands, <laughs> which given your habitual self-abuse, did you think we didn't know, will soon spread to your genitalia. Also, <laughs> posting, reading, or discussing this screenplay on the internet is a sure sign that you have failed to fill your empty life with worthwhile activities of your own, and it may be too late for you. Don't blame us. You were warned. <laughs> they didn't listen, obviously, and also basically calling internet nerds incels if they stole the script. Little did he know that that's a badge of honor. All right. Um, <laughs> the crazy oh, part of this all to me is hearing him talk about the whole process but uh uh he just because he, he like works on you know kingdom of the crystal skull like he said but uh so he's worked with like lucas or will work with lucasfilm but uh he talked about how this was distracting it was compared to anything else he'd done before how you, you want to take this thing and put it together in the best way you can but the internet's already inhospitable especially with fandom he said, mm -hmm. he said that right when he signed on, he has the best way of describing this. He, he says, it's like being the away team in a basketball game. He's like, there's fans that paid to be there. They want to be there. They want to have a good time being there, but you go up to shoot free throws and they're all screaming at you that you're going to fuck this up and telling you how much you suck. <laughs> that is a great <laughs> metaphor. Uh, yeah, solid. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's good. So these nerds, they also complained about the change to organic web shooters, uh, thinking that it made Peter seem less intelligent. Uh, they were so passionate about this that a website dedicated to the anti-organic web shooters movement was created called no-organic-webshooters.com. And no, it is no longer around. I couldn't even find it on the internet archive. I looked really hard. If somebody else can find <laughs> uh, just a screenshot or something of this website, please send it my way. Uh, however, if you search for all organic web shooters uh, slash horny stepmom wants tangled webs in her egg sack, uh, you will find some very interesting videos. Gross. Uh, I don't, if, I if do. you if you want some screenshots of that, um, no, I do not. 
No, it was I, it was really egg sack that put it over the edge. It was the egg sack. <laughs> it it egg really sack. was. That that was that was the point for me too. <laughs> Available for parties, bar mitzvahs. Uh, bar mitzvahs. Please do not bar say that at a bar mitzvah. <laughs> uh, but Ramey was aware of this movement. He said, uh, "Quote: I've seen the Down with Organic Web Shooters website, and I'm putting out a petition myself. Down with Down with Organic Shooters website." That's a, such a Ramey answer to that, isn't it? <laughs> well, Ramey actually had a very good reason for wanting to go the organic web shooters route. He says that uh, Peter, this is a, a, a direct quote. He says, Peter is supposed to be one of us. He is supposed to be an average middle-class kid, and he, and he would have to be a genius and a chemical engineer to devise a web shooter that was powerful enough to produce a web that could stick to buildings and allow him to fly around the city. Makes sense. Okay, well, let's talk about this for a second, because <laughs> Gary's got words. <laughs> no, 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 I just... I I would not have been one of the nerds on a website like complain. I do, I was never mad about organic web shooters. I was fine with it. But like genetically modified spiders, that's easy. That's that's like why would you not do that? Radioactive spiders will kill you. Uh, yeah, yeah, and, so- and genetically modified, they they give them the excuse that like that's why he's got powers for or aspects of all these various you know species of spider. Like they right. literally say that when they're talking about those spiders in the uh, the field trip. I, I say I said I would not be one of the nerds. I had the opportunity. I was a nerd at this time. So I'm old enough to have been a young man when this was coming out. A younger man. Anyway, the web shooter thing is I can see both sides of this because in the comics, it's it's used for good reason for Peter. Because Peter is like supposed to be there, there's this idea that. Peter's kind of special without knowing he's special, even without the spider powers. So it's a mm-hmm. part of that. Like in the original comics, it's more like he is that smart. Like the the regular Spider-Man universe, it's like, no, this guy, had he not just become Spider-Man, he would be hanging around with Reed Richards of the Fantastic Four. He does have genius level intellect. I mean, he kind and, of becomes that person later on in the comics. Yeah. 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 And even in the ultimate universe, you could do it uh, another way. I've been reading those, but like, it's more like, I I thought this was kind of cool. It's like a thing his dad was working on first. So it was Mm -hmm. like his dad, who he doesn't have, it's like a connection to his dad that he's been tinkering around with these things and he figures it out. Like after he gets the spider powers and stuff and he figures out what he could use this for and how it works. And like, and so it's, there's a way, and they do go to this, I guess, but there, you know, it could be part of Peter as much as Spider-Man. Yeah, but I, I do see the way that the I see where Raimi is coming from in that, and I kind of agree with him that like it's hard to if Peter's supposed to be like an everyman, which is one of the appeals of Peter Parker, then having him be a super genius, all that that makes him not an everyman because he's a super genius. There is something he is better than the people around him essentially he's in he's in like super intelligent to be able to do that when you're like 15 years old and create these web shooters you know there's no way that him and aunt may and uncle ben are going to be struggling for money because he gets a patent on that thing and they're millionaires right yeah so i i do see i absolutely see where Raimi's coming from on that and i i like the change because it, it always made sense to me because why would he get all these other spider powers and not get the ability to shoot webs. Although if we're being honest, he should be, you know, if we want to get action, should be blowing them out of his ass, out of his butthole. Yes. Right. I don't think it's an act- <laughs> the actual butthole. I don't know much about spider physiology, <laughs> but it's somewhere near the butthole. The tank. It's where we would put our buttholes. <laughs> right. I don't know <laughs> if we were a scary. I don't know where you want to put your butthole. 
on a spider, clearly. Obviously. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's not true. I don't want any part of me anywhere near a spider, but that's no. another story. <laughs> well, as soon as it was reported that Raimi's Spider-Man movie was in development, every entertainment writer and every fan began to play the guessing game, trying to figure out who uh, would or who should be cast as the film's Peter Parker. Uh, some of the actors that the studio expressed interest in were folks like Heath Ledger, Leonardo DiCaprio, Freddie Prinze Jr., Jude Law, Chris O'Donnell, Wes Bentley. Uh, James Franco actually auditioned for the role, but of course we know he would later be cast as Peter's friend, Harry Osborne. Uh, Joe Manganiello, who I always have a hard time with his name. Uh, he, he also auditioned for the role, uh, but he was instead cast as Flash Thompson. Bro, Chris Klein, Elijah Wood, supposedly Josh Hartnett turned mm -hmm. it down. Uh, according to his agent in an interview with Entertainment Weekly, Heath Ledger was the first choice. Yeah, uh, which honestly, he would have been really good. <laughs> yeah, uh, and, and honorably, this is kind of a nice little thing for him. But according to the agent, uh, Heath Ledger was not super into Spider-Man or anything. And he had him decline the role, had his agent decline the role, saying that he would be taking someone else's dream away. Oh, and that's very nice. I thought that was really nice. Chris uh, Klein would have been a horrible awful choice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I can't even imagine. Uh, I, I was reading about Wes Bentley because apparently around the time there was big fan support for him to do. I mean, he role. had just done he had just done American Beauty at this point. Yeah, and uh, for those who watch him or no, or who, those who watch Yellowstone, he Yellowstone, also is yeah. that Weasley little d bag Jamie, but. He apparently had it if he wanted it, at least from the studio's perspective. He actually stopped talks because uh, he thought superheroes were in trouble, uh, seeing how the last couple of Batman movies had done and uh, mm. where everything had gone. He also still, by the way, sounds like he wants to play Batman one day, like he's super into that concept. <laughs> uh, and I found stuff up till like late last year that uh, still had him like, supposedly like there were discussions about Wes Bentley, like if Ben Affleck didn't come back or something that Wes Bentley might be the guy to play the older Bruce Wayne. Or, I could see it. Uh, I think Freddie, poor, Freddie Prince Jr. might've been fun. I was about to say poor Freddie Prince. They'd ask Sam about a lot of these folks at interviews and he'd say, quote, I have my old guy in mind and Freddie Prince, he won't even be allowed to buy a ticket to see Spider-Man, much less be him. <laughs> wow. The shade. Okay. All right. All right. <laughs> but he said, uh, I met with a number of great actors. Many turned down the role and they were smart too, because their strengths sometimes are in being special people and portraying other special people on screen. We need somebody who's not Chris Reeve, not tall and handsome that'll turn heads we need somebody with a heart and soul that the audience will recognize themselves in so that goes back to his comic roots like he just knows what peter parker's supposed to be well to the surprise of many fans and hollywood insiders the man who was eventually cast in the role was toby mcguire uh, so McGuire, who was 26 years old at the time, he had begun his career in supporting roles in dramatic films like Ang Lee's The Ice Storm and Woody Allen's Deconstructing Harry before landing starring roles in movies like Pleasantville and uh, The Cider House Rules. It was actually The Cider House Rules. Um, Sam Raimi was a big fan of that movie, and uh, that's the movie that Raimi often uses to explain why McGuire was his only choice for the role. Yeah, there was an interview with him in Movie Hole where he said he was real grounded and that's what spider-man is he's a real kid he's he was perfect he said i saw him inside our house roles which was just so real and fantastic i had to cast him i think i saw somewhere else that he also said his wife gillian 
who's also a filmmaker, uh, had pushed him to be like, no, that's that's him. You got to do it. Amy Pascal said, uh, Toby might not have been the most obvious choice if you're casting what is the most important role of any character that is happening at the studio because he wasn't that kind of person. But he was a magnificent actor and inhabited all the qualities that Peter Parker needed. And to be honest, he was Sam Raimi's choice. And once that happened, Sam was steadfast. He would not make this movie with anybody else. You could you could hear it in the commentary too, just how much Sam loves Toby. Like talks about his face, like just his facial expressions, how you can see him working things out in his mind, how he can get across in silence so much with like his physicality, the the crying on the screen, he can turn on the tears. <laughs> Sam has so many of those good, like little Sam Raimi stupid jokes in the thing. But like, <laughs> there's like the scene where like Toby's sitting in his room crying after graduation and Aunt May comes in to comfort him. And Sam's just like, it's so great. Like seeing what he can do. Like in this scene, all, only direction I had to give him was like, your name's not going to appear above the title. And he was ready. <laughs> <laughs> well, the executives at Columbia had their reservations about McGuire. Uh, he didn't really fit the mold of what they thought a superhero should look like. Uh, they didn't harbor any doubts about his acting abilities. They knew he was a good actor. Uh, they knew he'd be able to pull off the Peter Parker side of the role. But would he be believable in the film's action scenes? But Raimi, however, uh, to, to your point, Gary, like Raimi fully believed in Maguire's ability to carry the film. So to prove it to the suits at Columbia, he filmed this elaborate screen test with Maguire. And in this scene, you can watch this online. It's on YouTube. If I think about it, I'll, uh, if I can remember, I'll put it in the show notes. Uh, I'll put a link to it. But in this scene, Maguire, uh, and he's not wearing a Spider-Man costume, but so you can tell that it's Tobey Maguire. He violently dispatches a gang of thugs in this kind of makeshift alley, like on a stage that they built. Uh, I, if you watch this scene, then you'll see how it could sell the executives at the studio, because in this scene, McGuire appears highly focused and he's actually shirtless in the entire uh, scene. And you can see that like he's showing off his he's got a lean, muscular build, like one that would be kind of befitting of Spider-Man, which was probably an important selling point for the studio. Uh, and after they saw, saw that screen test, the studio was sold. Yeah, I was wondering why he was topless in that clip, but he says he was so, wearing, yeah, he was he was wearing the leotard. He says it was like compressing his muscles too much. And he needed to show off that figure. So he tore that top off, daddy. Uh, <laughs> for McGuire, he took the role. He says he took the role, yes, because we all like money, but he actually ended up reading the first four years of Spider-Man comics, which is what I've been trying to do and could not nearly get through. Well, um, you're not getting paid millions of dollars to do it. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's not like they were bad. I just, I, I was just like, that's a lot of time that's a lot. <laughs> to get through yeah. all that. You have to have nothing else going on in your life to get through them very quickly. Well, we actually talked about that a little bit in our last episode where, you know, American comics at the time, especially Spider-Man, those were comics that were meant to be read as opposed to the Japanese uh, manga, which was more visual. Uh, so it's a lot, lot of words. A lot, le lot le yeah, a lot less dialogue. Yeah. You know, the other thing that's cool about them, just as a, another side note, since you said that, is that they're, one thing I've noticed with them too is like Stanley and Steve Ditko, what's super impressive about them with those comics is they're like, they're full stories. Like you're not getting the like to be continued mm -hmm. after like 16 pages or something. Like it's like, you're going to be these are like middle full 20 end. something yeah. page like stories and they tell the whole thing. And I'm like, these guys are like cranking these guys out. Like mm -hmm. granted, yeah. they're not as like sophisticated as now, but they're 
good enough. <laughs> you know, yeah. like they're, yeah. it's pretty crazy. But Toby uh, about the role with like Peter, he he just said he found a lot of subtext in the character, and he said he had he got to talk to Sam Raimi about how it would be portrayed, and he he liked the idea that was darker, more conflicted. He said he thought Sam like had that same perspective with him that it's not just going to be a dumb action vehicle. There's going to be a lot of serious elements that audiences can find that they could have some fun with the concept, but also have like real characters in it. Uh, he did admit on a Howard Stern interview that I watched though, that uh, his ego was rubbed a little raw that the uh, studio was not buying him as spider stud. Uh, well, I mean, come on. <laughs> They're like, I'm an art house guy. He was like, come on. He's like, I hurt your ego. They, they could have seen Cider House rules. He's like, yeah, but they were like, we know he can act. Can he do anything else? And then <laughs> and he's just like, so yeah, my, my ego was a little. Yeah, <laughs> like, come on. Nobody was looking at Tobey Maguire at that time and thinking action movie star. You know, he's, yeah. Uh, yeah. But, but, you know, after he was cast, he did embark on a training regimen to bulk up. Uh, he exercised for four hours a day, six days a week with a routine that included martial arts, cycling, gymnastics, and yoga. He was trying to put up, I mean, he was already in great shape, as you can see from from that video that uh screen test but he was trying to bulk up a little more uh he's also uh vegan i believe toby mcguire is so he did know, go vegan yeah yeah so uh which made bulking up a little more difficult for him but as you can see in the movie i mean he does it and and he's spider-man so he doesn't need to be like doesn't need to look like the fucking the rock you know <laughs> he just, right <laughs> he needs to be lean still that's what spider-man's shaped like I think he I think he went vegan on this movie because Elizabeth Banks in one interview was telling a story about eating a burger outside of uh J. Jonah Jameson's office. And uh while they were rehearsing a scene and Toby was like, Come on, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so Toby Maguire ended up uh, signing on for a $4 million payday with a guarantee of $12 million for the sequel. If the sequel ends up happening. So I know that like, I remember at the time we're, we're all old enough to remember when this movie came out and the internet was already a thing. Uh, you know, the ain't it cool news and all this stuff, Joe blow or whatever the, all the old movie sites were all reporting on this. And I do think that uh, from what I remember and, and even to this day, that the casting of Tobey Maguire as Spider-Man has always been kind of a point of contention for some people, not for everyone, but for some people. So uh, I want to ask you guys, like, I know you guys are both big fans of the film, so we don't need to really get into that. But what do you think specifically of Tobey Maguire in the film? I, and I only look back on it because you liked my review on Letterboxd the other day, Justin. I looked back on my review and I said, Tobey is not my favorite Spider-Man and I think I gave them maybe like three and a half stars, whatever. I have fallen way more in love with it, spoiler alert, than I have ever been in love with it before. But if you go back and you read, like I've been doing these amazing Spider-Man comics from, from the start, I think he's perfect. Like, I think he's exactly Peter Parker. Like he, he is like exact. I mean, you could tell the dude fucking read those comics. Like he, he really did. He wanted, and you know that that's the kind of Spider-Man Sam Raimi would have wanted. So yeah, he's not the same Spider-Man that exists now. Um, probably. And Tom Holland probably like has that embodiment. You know, I was disappointed when I watched it, when it first came out that he's not as witty or he's not as quippy whippy as the as as i pictured him but the og spider-man like builds that up over time right it wasn't it still it wasn't not there constant. yeah it wasn't there from the get-go yeah but he's definitely toby has this weird like one thing about the original spider-man I'll, I'll shut up is that he has this like there's a darkness to him like there's a little bit of uh 
I, I never knew this before, but reading the comics, there's like this bit of him that like when you can read inside his thought bubbles, like he's looking at people like Flash Thompson. And he's literally in the comic that Stan Lee wrote saying like, you're so lucky I don't knock your teeth down your throat. Like, he's yeah. like I, can, I will smash you through the concrete like he's like he's got that like inner nerd that's a little bit bitter that like it's a little bit like i want to fuck you up so bad well that's <laughs> embodied in this film in the speech that he gets from uncle ben where he's like just because you can beat a guy up doesn't mean that you should yeah no no that's that's exactly right and that's what i look at with this is like toby does have that arrogance we talked on the last episode about a one of the scripts like he ends up on david letterman or something like mm-hmm. that like literally in the comics and i never do this i don't know that i've ever read these but like that's all part of it like he he does get an agent like right at the beginning hmm. like when he could do spider-man shit he yeah. beats the rest of human shirt tricks yeah he goes on ed <laughs> sullivan in the comics really like, just doing shows <laughs> he's making money like he's racking up cash and so when it comes to the point where that criminal dude busts by him it's like not even as much in this movie where it's like getting back at the dude it's just like i don't have time for this shit yeah. like this is not my problem <laughs> i do love that little moment in the film though where he has that that cool line like i well I forgot the part where that's my problem, you know, yeah. and he gets this little smirk on his face where you're like, this could go another direction for this character. Yeah. Oh, he easily could because uh, there he he was on the ID10T podcast, which is like uh, Chris Hardwick's podcast after the Nerdist. But and he talks about there were like they talk about daughter Superman and uh, Chris Hardwick asked him about Sam about like, you know, well, it seems like a basic story like it's like it starts off as kind of a revenge story like blah 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 and he's like no 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 he's like i look at it like this he's like this guy uh has everything he ever wanted all of a sudden and he's like taking advantage of it and he lets those cool moments happen and he slips in to be like now i can do the cool like lied to this guy and i can do this thing and that one time he fucks it up and he slips into that it killed his uncle and it's not just mm-hmm. because he's like, he's like, if you watch Donner's Superman, he's like, and this probably sounds like an end of the show speech, but he's like, basically, if you watch the Donner Superman, he's like, you can watch, he's like, what's beautiful is it's like, Clark goes, grows up with that family and you can see these values being instilled into him. And he's like, he, he becomes that guy. So by the time he's Superman, you can see that why that dude flying through the air believes the stuff he believes and does what he does. But he's like, with Spider-Man, it's a little bit different. Like, this is a guy who's fighting that. And he's like, at the time that his uncle tries to stop him and say, wait a minute, don't get ahead of yourself. Like, you need to think about these things. Like, you have something else to think about now. You're growing into something. And he just tells him basically to fuck off. Mm-hmm. He's like, and then gets caught up in it and it costs his uncle his life. And he's like, and now he's living with that guilt every single day that he didn't listen and he didn't, you know, he didn't have those values. He yeah. wasn't that guy and it, yeah. and it fucked him up. So he's dealing with that guilt for forever. The rest of his life. Yeah. <laughs> so what do you think, Todd, of Tobey Maguire as, uh, as Peter in, in this movie? I, I think, uh, I mean, first of all, to go back, uh, it's uh, it's not a secret. I'm a big, huge Batman fan, and I, but I do also love this. Um, I do also love Spider Man. But um, to take it to Batman for a second, when I read a Batman comic, 
I can hear Kevin Conroy's voice at the guy, you know, the guy played the character for, you know, over 20 years turned in an iconic performance. And it's hard for me as a Batman fan to read a Batman comic and not hear Kevin Conroy's voice after this first Spider-Man movie. That's the voice I heard when I read a Spider-Man comic is Tobey yeah. Maguire. He, beca- uh, he really does become the character. Yeah. And I, and it's, and it's one of those, and I mean, getting into like podcasting and recording and editing sound, you kind of get to appreciate all the little nuances and stuff like that. And again, stuff like the, uh, the moment Gary just mentioned where he gets, he gets that opportunity to, to take that, to take that line as a little dagger and just kind of uh, right in the guy who just screwed him over. But there's a, there is that darkness behind his eyes and you, and you know, when it's that tight shot on, on his face, it's a, it's that slight smile. It's that, it's that um, contentment, that mm-hmm. dark contentment of, I, you know, this was, this was better than winning the match. I, yeah. I got to have my moment where someone screwed me over and I got to screw them right back and say a cool, one and say a cool one-liner yeah um yeah so yeah for me for me it's the voice and the the subtle nuances in you know uh in in the things that they're doing with their face and with their voice and uh yeah so i i'm 100 on board with toby yeah I'm, I'm with you on the face and then the uh and the voice now that you say that too but yeah i mean and and you can and it's really helpful too if you watch the commentary like sam points it out a lot like on the thing like watch his face watch his face right yeah now. look at that because he's and, a uh, great actor. just like even at the end when he walks away from mary jane he's like watch his face right now he's like <laughs> this is a guy who just finally put it all together yeah. he's like i yeah. did it i may i did what i i'm the responsible thing to do right now yeah that's his journey Uh, i mean what i like one thing i like about mcguire's take on peter parker and and really Raimi's take on peter parker is that peter really comes across as a total dork like a total loser Uh, i don't think you can say that about later iterations of andrew garfield of spider-man like andrew garfield and tom holland uh, both of whom i think i have that had their strengths but i think garfield's peter is frankly just too cool to be peter parker like he's skateboarding around the high school and stuff like he's just a little too cool and holland is honestly i think holland's great in the role but as far as like what peter parker is supposed to be he's a little too damn charming and a little too handsome to be ever be believable as a high school nerd mcguire and i truly mean this as a compliment is very believable as an absolute loser at the beginning of this movie. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Because the thing is, like, Peter Parker, when he's not in costume as Spider-Man, and to be honest, so, sometimes even when he is in costume as Spider-Man, he's kind of a fuck-up. You know, he's always, like, he, he's got bad luck with girls. He's always struggling uh, with money. And, but that's what makes Peter Parker so relatable, uh, which is why I think that, you know, him being this, like, super genius in the MCU uh, and looking like Tom Holland doesn't isn't as believable like uh, peter parker who is struggling to pay rent is the peter parker that i care about because he's relatable to anyone who's ever struggled to pay rent before yeah and mcguire just embodies that in a way that no other actor has in this role i think to to hammer it home and then i, I know we'll move on because uh, we've <laughs> we've got a lot more to cover this is what we do daddy uh, yeah <laughs> but there's even in the fight scenes he he squeaks like he he, <laughs> he squeaks a little bit like uh when he gets hit you you'll hear a little <laughs> like <laughs> and, 
little, that's, that's just a little toot coming out. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, he's got, again, it, to show that he's not one of the, uh, uh, like even yeah. like, you know, grunting, getting hit type things. Don't he's not sound a tough handy. guy. Yeah. He's yeah. not a tough guy. <laughs> Well, for the role of the film's main baddie, several names were thrown around, including Nicolas Cage, which honestly would have been awesome, uh, Jason Isaacs, and John Malkovich, all of whom are great choices, but they all turned down the role. Uh, the role would ultimately go to Willem Dafoe, who took the role largely because he was intrigued by the idea of working with Raimi. Uh, he was a fan of Raimi's work. Uh, he had heard a lot of Raimi's stories from his friends. Uh, he was friends with Joel and Ethan Cohen and Francis McDormand. Uh, he had starred alongside uh, McDormand and Alan Parker's uh, 1988 film Mississippi Burning. I don't know why Alan Parker's name comes up so much on this podcast. It's really bizarre. <laughs> but, uh, and he would later say in an interview, when I heard that he was going, speaking of Sam Raimi, when I heard that he was going to direct Spider-Man, I thought that was an inspired choice. Yeah, that's that's true. Like, I mean, he says in like every interview you see, uh, in fact, the one I got this quote from, <laughs> he says initially what attracted me to it was Sam Raimi. And also, this idea of making a film out of these comic book characters. He's like, there was an audition process to this. And he's like, and it's the last time that I can remember that I put myself on tape for an audition. Wow. It was he just really wanted it. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And uh, he said, uh, apparently, I, I guess Sam had, uh, before Willem like really landed it, like, or it was like Billy Crudup was, uh, was going to be uh, not, uh, not a bad choice. No, no, no. And, and he thought he, Billy Crudup thought himself, he himself was a little too young, but he might have done it, but almost yeah, famous. It, he got almost famous around the same time and yeah. he dropped out. And uh, he gets so, to make a comic book movie down the line. So, yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> well, Raimi called Defoe while the actor was in Spain working on another movie and he spoke to him for hours, long distance, you know, talking to him for hours about his plans for the film. And what sold Defoe was Raimi's approach to the story's characters. Uh, here's another quote from him. This is uh, him in an interview with TV Guide. He said he told the story in such precise and psychological detail. Ultimately, the Green Goblin goes after Spider-Man because he feels rejected. He'd wanted Spider-Man to join him like a father wants his son to in the family business. I thought this guy is nuts, but he might just make a fantastic movie. And he had to shoot test footage in the hotel room too, like to send it to the studio just to prove, which is kind of neat, I think. Like just yeah. in your hotel room, you're doing this thing. One thing I love about Defoe is that he is also very physical with his actions and stuff. Big time, yeah. Apparently, once he was like locked in, he was like demanded that I'm going to do 95% of the stunts that happen on this movie. Like, well, I yeah, he didn't think anything. that a uh, stunt man could do like the body movements that he wanted like these big theatrical movements that the character does in the movie yeah. yeah you know it's weird you said that because he and well at least with toby i know toby like brings it up in the thing he talks about a lot of younger actors he's he's like these days he's like one thing that he he thought was great was he had done theater stuff and willem was a theater guy or like had done theater stuff and that like he's like actors today and this may be an old man yelling at clouds or something, but he was just like, <laughs> but he's like a lot of younger actors get used to like, they come up and they think movies. That's all they're thinking is movies and movies are all about your face. I think we even talked about this in the Hodorowski thing that he talked about, like a lot of people like, or he was talking about movies being certain parts and TV being certain parts and theater being certain. Anyway, but Toby was uh, saying that like a lot of the younger actors lose that body 
stuff. Like that they're not as physical about their movements, the way that they're, that that's as important to them as their facial expressions or whatever else, which Toby obviously has the face down. But when you're in a movie like this, you know, and your face is covered for a lot of it, yeah. then a guy like, you know, Willem Dafoe is amazing because he's like super into the physicality, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> you know, and, uh, and they said what was really cool with him is that for even with the stuntmen, they had people jumping on that glider. I mean, they had the glider like it was a mechanical bull, like sitting up on top of a thing, moving and stuff. And they were trying to work on ways to make it so that you can anticipate the way that it's going to move. So it's less about it moving you and more about it looking like you're controlling it. You right. Know? Yeah. And they had stuntmen for that that were like practicing on that and like trying to nail it down. They said, Willem Dafoe was like, I have to do this. I want to get in there and do this. And they said, he went in, jumped on that thing. And they said within 15 minutes, he was just like, perfect. Like he just had it. I mean, you don't think of Willem Dafoe as like an an action movie guy, but the guy is in incredible shape. Yeah, And uh, even the guys like the stuntmen and the the guys who are doing the special effects on this uh, say that like, he's one of the most physically impressive actors they've ever worked with oh yeah toby 100 percent talks about how he's like oh he's like a super trade yogi like mm-hmm. he he like he was like he's incredible shape and he hits hard <laughs> he, <was> like, <laughs> like, he bruised my ribs in the final fight <laughs> he was well, like so what do you guys think overall of defoe's take on the green goblin well i'm gonna kind of echo what i said about toby uh he's i think he's got a great voice both as both as Norman and yeah, as voices, Goblin. voices, voices. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it's, it's great. You know, we just, we just got done talking about the physicality. There's one, there's one thing that always sticks out to me. And I don't know if it's just me personally or whatever he it's when he starts having that back and forth in the mirror with mm-hmm. him, with himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he takes a drink and you see him like whip the glass over the side. Yeah. And, that to that little movement to me is such a stage theater type of move. Yeah, and I, I was like, oh, there it is. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. and then looking at him, especially when he's got the newspaper and going back and forth in the mirror, I it made me think of Gollum. Oh, and, absolutely. Which had come out just a uh, six months before this. Okay, I knew they were. I knew they were close. December two thousand one is when the first well no no so um the golem scene though the scene you're talking about is in the second one which would come out the following december so yeah this also does predate it but also evil dead 2 like bruce campbell talks back and forth to himself that's right yeah yeah yeah. that's true but i just i just think the way that defoe is able to totally embody these two characters with and bringing that theatrical stage movement with Ramey's sensibilities behind the camera and technical and technical prowess at this point just makes for just such a delicious scene. Like I, I love it. I and I love I love Defoe as Goblin. It's great. It was. I don't know about you. Fun to it was a lot of fun to see him come back to the role as well. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I don't know about you guys, but I could go for a delicious. Right now. <laughs> well, so i mean i i really love i i'm a little biased because willem dafoe is pro if i had to name a favorite actor i'd probably pick willem dafoe i he just fascinates me in every role that he ever does wow. i love him i love okay. him and i think he, he can do comedy i mean look at him in like the life aquatic like he is just a fearless actor uh mm-hmm. in in everything that he does but 
here specifically, I mean, he really embodies the role because he is absolutely unhinged. Uh, and he feels like he's working on a different level than everyone else in the movie. Like he's playing it a little bit campier than everyone else. Uh, yeah. And it works. It works really well because camp kind of is kind of Raimi's thing. So even while the other characters aren't exactly camping it up the way Defoe is, the performance fits the overall tone of the movie, I think. And mm-hmm. th- and to your point, Todd, that mirror scene is one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie. Just to yeah. Just to watch him as a performer, it's fun. Yeah. You yeah. know, <laughs> oh, it's fantastic. And not to mention that his own face just on its own kind of resembles the Green Goblin mask. In the sure, of course, books. he does. Yeah, yeah. yeah a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But he uh, he's great at um, I think in the commentary, like Sam talks about, he's like he was so good at like he's sweet when he needs to be sweet. He's physically capable. And then he's a menace. Like mm-hmm. he just seems menacing. And and I agree. Like, I love that. Oh, oh, it's physicality thing, by the way. Like they also said, like, he got great on the glider of like, they were legitimately like popping pumpkin bombs up out of the top of the glider. And you can't really see out of that mask, but he just like learned to just grab them as they popped wow. out. And, like <laughs> He was just, he just like, they had, they were everybody, even the stunt guys were just like this fucking guy. Like, yeah, that's, he's, <laughs> he's just too cool. Like Willem Dafoe is just cool. You know, yeah, I'm he, watching him in interviews because he does seem just very zen in interviews and stuff. Like, I just, I don't know. I just like the guy. <laughs> well, and, and every story you hear too, and the, these are the great things sometimes with the commentators, you get to hear these stories, but like Toby, like talking about him, just like how much he loves him. And just like, he's like, and he wouldn't stay in his trailer. Like so many actors would do like, he wanted to be on set. Like he yeah. wanted to see what was going on. It's Willem Dafoe. And he's like, hanging out on set. And he's like, I want to see what's happening. I want to yeah. be a part of it. And like, supposedly even like with the sequel, like he's going to ask Sam to like, can you bring me back somehow? Let me do something. <laughs> and uh, he's excited. And he talks about it in interviews, like being super excited. And he's like, he's like, and I got a role that like now when a little kid runs up to me and wants to talk to me, he's like, it ain't about antichrist. <laughs> let's, let's hope not let's hope not uh, one, of, one of my other little favorite moments of his in this is right before he he gets killed by his glider and, and it just cuts to him going oh and that's such a great it's a great Willem Dafoe moment but it's also a great Sam Ro- Sam Raimi moment I think right there because uh, yeah, it's just you know funny. he felt uh, another production thing he's he he was it was already done at that point and uh he had to come back. Like, I think he was off filming. I forget what he was filming, but uh, he had to come back in and film that scene because they wanted to add the don't tell Harry line. Uh, and, uh, it's a great, it's line. a great line. Cause it's the callback yeah. too. Yeah. yeah but he had, uh, he had done something different with his hair at that point. So it's a wig. Like uh, Sam Raimi was like pointing it out. It's like, that's a wig. He's like, he's the David Bowie of green goblins. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder what it would have been around that time. Maybe boondock saints or something was, it would have been around that time. Probably. Yeah, maybe. I'm not going to bother maybe. looking it up right now, but <laughs> much like the roles of Peter Parker and Norman Osborn, the role of the movie's love interest, Mary Jane Watson had a lot of potential actors gunning for it. You had Kate Bosworth, Eliza Dushku, Mina Suvari, Jamie King. They all auditioned for the role. Um, Elizabeth Banks auditioned for the role, but she was told she was too old for the part and was cast as Betty Brant instead. Uh, she's like a couple years older than Toby. So she'd have been like 28. So she probably was a little old for the role. Um, Kate Hudson uh, was offered the role, turned it down. 
But Kirsten Dunst decided to audition actually after learning that McGuire had been cast because she thought that that meant the film would have more of like an indie movie feel. You know, they got this like indie movie, this dramatic actor in the role. Uh, So she was overseas filming Peter Bogdanovich's The Cat's Meow. Really fun little movie where she plays Marion Davies, by the way, if you haven't seen that. Uh, So she's off filming that when she screen tested with McGuire and the two like just had instant chemistry. Uh, Here's another little fun fact for you about Kirsten Dunst. This was not the first role that she had where she played the love interest in a comic book movie. Just two years before Spider-Man, she starred in The Crow Salvation alongside, um, let me check my notes, Eric Mabius. And uh, to answer everyone's question about who would ever mention The Crow Salvation in a podcast, maybe us. Well, that's probably the only time we ever will. (laughs) (laughs) This Uh, bit has been brought to you by Cinema Shock. (laughs) Kate Hudson uh, dropped it due to uh, she wanted to do the four feathers. So, um, oh, good. good Glad that worked out for her. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, (laughs) But what you said about uh, Kirsten, like, yeah, it was Sam. It was also Sam Raimi, she says, and stuff that like, um, it felt like, wow, all these like small movie people are like coming in to do like a big movie. Like she was like, I know it's going to be life changing, but like, I just want to be a part of it. Cause it sounds interesting. Like it sounds yeah. fun. Like I've never done anything like this. And I trust all these people that are working on it. And she said, you know, it really made you feel like you're making a tiny scale movie with Sam. And they were like, and, and what's beautiful is like, he gets you excited about everything he says. I fell in love with Kirsten Dust again. And I think that she is amazing. And I did not even realize how amazing I thought she was until like, like even listening to her on the commentary with Laura Ziskin, she sounds so just cool and just like, just chill. And then you hear like Toby's commentary with JK and they're talking about like Kirsten Dunst is like the best person you'll ever work with. Like she is so like non-glamorous, non-vain. Like she is just like bold. We'll do whatever you try with her. She has no problem telling, you no. she like, well, she will, you know, she's like not self-conscious though. Like, I think she is really wonderful in this movie. Like she's got this thing where she just has this like joy for life as Mary Jane that you can see, even if, I mean, she, she's, I mean, even if she wasn't just like smoking hot, uh, you could see why, Harry and Peter would be attracted to Mary Jane because she's just got this confidence and this like just lust for life kind of feel to her. Like when she, you know, she gets that scene where she's talking to Peter and he's, he's saying something along the lines of um, he's they're talking about Harry and he's like, why, why are you so interested? Am I interested? That, that little scene, that little back and forth they have. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And she's like, why would I be interested? She's like, I don't know. Why would you? And you're watching that scene of her kind of flirting with him without really flirting with him. And she's got this little smirk on her face and she's so good at it that you're like, I get it, Peter. I understand. understand. She's so good. (laughs) And she just like, you know what she does? She zoods this movie. The more and more I think about it is like a universal horror movie like in a lot of ways and she exudes don't get todd started (laughs) no i'm just saying she exudes like those women like the women that were actresses like you know like uh, i don't know even going back to like Faye ray or something like she's just like she's got this like something about her like something's just radiates off of her Mm -hmm. one thing i loved about her though is that she talked like 
Toby was talking about she's not afraid to say no to anything that he had like uh, seen her do stuff where people have been like lose weight and she's like no I'm not losing weight I think that was like to Sophia Coppola or something like <laughs> and told her to lose weight she's like I'm not losing weight and yeah uh, and she says that she didn't name names she said one of the producers on the uh, on this movie told her to fix her teeth like they yeah, needed and to she do refused. something with her teeth and yeah. she said no <laughs> I'm not yeah. doing I'm not getting perfect Barbie doll teeth yeah like this is just who I am. And uh, as she even says, like, Sam would get you excited about everything. Well, like, apparently enough to make you jump off a building. Like, he wanted to see what they could do with the stunts. So he took her, like, she said, on top of the uh, Sony studio to test one of the stunts. And for her to fall off the side of the building, like she said, I basically bungee jumped. And uh, she said, I came back up. And he was like, how'd that feel? And he's, she's like, well, I hope you shot it because I'm never doing that again. <laughs> like, that's not happening. <laughs> and, um, uh, her and Toby were also dating. They started dating during the course of this movie. Oh, bro, I got more about that. Oh, okay, well, let's, we'll get to it. <laughs> okay. oh, I, I do. So but... I, I don't want to sound like a Kirsten Dunst hater. I, I do like her in this, but I feel like the Mary Jane that is, again, in those first you know, in those first few appearances of her in the comic, the Mary Jane that is presented is is a unreachable goal type girl or, you know, the unattainable girl. And when we're talking about like Sam Raimi making these small independent movies, I feel like the Mary Jane that we get is the Mary Jane at the beginning of an indie film career. And well, it feels kind of like, like she, we see her waiting tables yeah. and like trying to go to auditions and stuff like that. So she's got that like indie sensibility to her. And I think that, I think that comes through as opposed, as opposed to her just showing up at the door and be like, you just, uh, you just hit the jackpot tiger. It's well, like well, let that, me, let me know? just say too, that she says in the commentary at one point, she's like, it's funny. I actually read a lot more with Stacy at first mm-hmm. that I did like Mary Jane. Ah. And so she's like, I did read Mary Jane later, but you know, like as we were doing it, but it, to me, she she embod- she would be a great Gwen Stacy too. Like she embodies the Gwen Stacy from the mm-hmm. comics a little bit more. Well, sort yeah. of. Like I mean, well, she's very she comes across very much as like an actual girl next door, right? You know, which yeah. is which is what yeah. works for this this movie. Which is now which, which when you go back in Sam Raimi's career, who was he working with making these little films? His friends at school and the next door neighbors, like mm-hmm. this this yeah, she kind of really fits into that. It's wonderful. As the, as the he's probably I'm, I'm I don't know that but and nobody needs to know all this but in the in the nerdy aspect of it the ultimate comics version of Mary Jane is the girl next door like mm-hmm. she is the girl in Peter Parker's neighborhood and right. is also kind of a nerdy person who like is his friend and they hang out and they right. do all that stuff whereas like in the original Mary Jane is like more of a crazy over the top person kind of the wild yeah. child yep. like you yeah. know girl but. Yeah. Anyway, uh, other roles, uh, we had Cliff Robertson cast in the vital role of Uncle Ben uh, Robertson, bringing a little bit of, you know, old school Hollywood here. He had uh, he had played another comic book role in the past. He had played a cowboy villain named Shame. That's Shame with an M, kind of a play on Shane. You know what they're doing there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was in the 1960s Batman TV show. So they're going for the camp thing there. He had also recently starred in uh, as the villainous president in John Carpenter's Escape from L.A. Remember that? Uh, oh, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, but his most acclaimed role had been back in 1969 when he played the title character in the film Charlie, which was based on the book 
Flowers for Algernon, and that's a role that won him a Best Actor Oscar. Uh, other cast members uh, included... Oddly enough, sorry, I meant to mention this before, but, uh, Cliff Roberts said, I thought this was a little interesting side story with him, is that uh, this was his first film for Columbia Pictures in 25 years. They had blacklisted him since Columbia 1977. Had... Yeah, Why? because he uh, had like discovered, it was something about like his signature was used on a forged check that a studio exec was embezzling money with and Ooh. Columbia wanted it to like disappear. But like Cliff Robertson talked to the press about it. Like when ah. I, they blacklisted it. Wouldn't oh. interesting. <laughs> wow. That's wow. Uh, uh, quickly before we move on uh, escape from LA also featuring Bruce Campbell. Of course, yeah. Surgeon General. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, other cast members here include Rosemary Harris as Aunt May. Uh, she had previously appeared in Raimi's The Gift. He, she played Kate Blanchett's uh, character's grandmother. Uh, you've got J.K. Simmons, uh, the uh, the incredible J.K. Simmons as oh. J. Jonah Jameson. Yeah. And of course, you have Raimi regulars, Ted Raimi, and we've already mentioned him, but Bruce Campbell making their obligatory cameo appearances, as does, of course, the classic Sam's Oldsmobile Delta 88 that appears in every one of his movies. That's Uncle Ben's car. And I feel like this is kind of the the glamour shot for the for the 88. Like yeah. they get to have the really um, you know, Uncle Ben and Peter get to have the nice back and forth before they get out. And well, they also get a car the, chase. Yeah, they also get the car <laughs> yeah. chase. The Which they did thing. in Dark yeah. Man, but yeah, yeah, they did. I see what Todd's saying. They have like an actual like a scene in the, in right. the 88. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. A nice, yeah. A nice moment, a pivotal moment in there very uh toby and jk had worked uh, jk's in cider house rules yeah um, he is and uh and he worked with sam on for the love of the game and the mm -hmm. gift supposedly some actors that were considered for jameson were arlie ermy I can you see are. it. That's, that seems almost too obvious, honestly. <laughs> <That's awesome. laughs> Stan Lee really wanted the role, but he had to concede that he was too old for it. Yeah, and uh, supposedly Michael Keaton like auditioned for it, which was I could honestly yeah. see that too. I could cool. Although I, I could more see like later, like now Michael Keaton, like old grizzled Michael Keaton, a little bit better. He's got the voice for it, you know. Like yeah. he's got that good voice. But uh, now but, he's the vulture. But, so. but now, yeah, now he's the vulture. But you, you honestly, you can't do any better than what J.K. Simmons does here, which is oh, why they ended up just bringing him back in the MCU. <laughs> yeah. Oh, he's because he, he's so good. He, he, yeah, you see him on screen and you're like, holy shit, if you've read the comics, you're like, that is that guy. That's him. That's the guy. <laughs> yep. that's uh, exactly they were right. like, yeah, he was bald at the time, so that's like a hairpiece on, but they said, I like, mean, yeah, it? I think he's been bald for a very long time. <laughs> <laughs> they said as soon as they put that hairpiece on, they were like, oh, it's just, that's, that's him. him. That's, that's him. Uh, that's, J that's JJ. <laughs> and uh, it's crazy, too. Like, he, he, Sam does such a good job with him because he even gets those like moments of, like he gets one in this of like a little bit of heart where he's like, you know, because I think he, he talks about like he did, he worked with Sam and didn't want him to be a complete piece of shit the whole time, you know, but he gets that moment where green goblin comes looking for who's taking the photos and he's saving Peter Parker's life. He basically. does. Yeah. Like he, he really like, does. I'm not going to tell you like, you yeah. know, yeah, I don't know. He's, he's not. Is. He's not a complete monster. Yeah, uh, he well, just, he just wants picks of Spider Man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, this is the point <laughs> grab, where grab, we are <laughs> double grab. That's so good, and the pictures are incredible. <laughs> uh, so this is the part where we pass it along to Todd. Uh, surely, in a movie of this size, we've got to have a handful of Star Trek alum, right? And a handful we do have. Uh, so 
This week we've got uh right uh, we've got quite a few so I'm going to try to burn through these uh pretty quick. We got Don, John Dykstra as man running in front of little Billy. It's an uncredited role, but he actually worked on Star Trek the motion picture as part of their uh visual effects uh he was yeah, we're gonna talk all about john dykstra in a minute <laughs> yeah yeah so <laughs> he, he has he, a cameo in this yeah he has a brief cameo in this but he did a lot of uh visual effects for uh star trek the motion picture back in 1979 then we've got uh one of the oscorp lab technicians actually wrote directed and starred in a star trek short a mock time it's actually about a Star Trek nerd getting his wife, getting his soon-to-be bride to agree to a Star Trek wedding. Mm, uh, wow. Then we've got uh, one of the cops is uh, Mark de Alessandro. Mark de Alessandro, uh, who has actually done a lot of stunt work in the Star Trek movies: uh, First Contact, Insurrection, Nemesis, and Into Darkness. He did stunts on all of those. Uh, Andy Bray is boy carrying Trey in the cafeteria actually did five episodes of Star Trek phase two as Chekhov. Uh, then we've got Rick Avery. who is another cop here was uh, the stunt coordinator on Star Trek insurrection. And then we've got Ashley Edner, uh, one of the girls in the tram. She actually did a episode of Voyager and appeared in Star Trek beyond uh, Corey Mendel Parker, uh, the chaperone on the tram was actually in Star Trek Enterprise season two, episode 20 horizon, where he plays the brother of Travis Mayweather, Paul Mayweather. And then we've got Jim Ward as the project coordinator, uh, in, in this movie, but he actually did some voice work for Star Trek Armada two. That was a video game back in 2001. And then we've got, uh, Jill Sayer, uh, as a nurse, who was in uh, Star Trek Deep Space Nine Season 3, Episode 6, The Abandoned, which was actually directed by Avery Brooks, a.k.a. Ben Sisko. I and love then, that, like, all of these so far, none of their characters in Spider-Man have a name. Yeah, yeah, none of them. <laughs> except, except for our last one, Kirsten Dunst, who uh-huh. plays Mary Jane Watson. She was actually in Star Trek The Next Generation Season 7, Episode 7, dark page that was in 1987 she had to be so, very young because she's yeah, like my she, age yeah, so yeah. she she had to have been like five or six years old probably yeah she's one of those little kids that uh probably got under picard's skin and was just yeah. like all right get her away from me yeah i feel that way about most kids too and that's everybody in star trek so just real quick i want to knock these out uh since we shouldn't mention them like just for cameo purposes obviously stan lee is in the movie yeah, Wait, very what? briefly. Yeah, what he is—he has a longer scene. If you look at, uh, if you look at the um, deleted scenes, he has mm. one where he tries to sell some kids some some sunglasses. I think it's the kid he ends up saving. Yeah, he's like, oh, they wore these in the X Men. <laughs> that obviously we <laughs> talked about Bruce Campbell, uh, Lucy Lawless is in there. Uh, oh yeah, Sam Raimi would have worked with on Xena uh, and. Uh, Nicholas Hammond's in there, who was the Spider-Man from the TV series. Is he? Really? He gets, he gets saved in the Times Square scene, like when okay. Spider-Man shoots the webs and pulls a couple back. Yeah, that's oh, him. Yeah. yeah, that's him. Huh. Ivan Raimi is like with his family in the first bus scene. Okay. Uh, walking through. And uh, and then, of course, Macho Man Randy Savage. We didn't really Not really a that. cameo, but yeah, he deserves yeah. a mention. The late, <laughs> yeah. great Macho Man Randy Savage exactly um there's also learned about this guy just because the commentary mentioned him and i didn't know who this was but this guy named radio man from new york yes Uh, is he a superhero well kind (laughs) of 
he is like the most well he's like considered like the most well-known extra in film like he <laughs> he started out as homeless he is no longer homeless because he just ends up getting paid now but like he would just show up t- on the sets and and get put in stuff it, i he love played, that he's in um he's in 30 rock a couple of times as as moon vest okay yeah yeah and, and <laughs> there's that scene where Jack McBrayer's character, uh, P- Kenneth, is like, hey, Moonvest, I had an idea for a TV show. And he, and the guy looks at him and goes, give me your fingernails. <laughs> it's just such a bonker scene, man. <laughs> he's in like, uh, yeah, so he's in like 30 Rock. It's always sunny in Philadelphia. The Departed, Shutter Island, Just My Luck, <laughs> Elf. Multiple more. Scorsese movies. Yeah, he says yeah. Scorsese <laughs> is his favorite director. All right. Um, <laughs> Secret Life of Walter Mitty, uh, wow. Board Trilogy. He's like all those, like <laughs> Godzilla, I love that. And, like Ransom, Big Daddy, Mr. Deed. So apparently he likes Adam Sandler too. <laughs> That's great. I love that. That's but he would just like show up to like sets. And it's so, somehow like he, he even just knew where they were filming a movie and all about it. Like nobody could figure out how he knew, but now wow. he's just like known by everyone. So like he's is enough that like outside the moon dance diner, they're like talking about actors and stuff. And uh, like Sam Raimi and guys are just like, Oh, there's radio, man. (laughs) (laughs) There's a comedian, uh, Jim Norton as the, as that truck driver. Oh yeah. Yeah. During the little montage. Yeah. 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 And, um, and Lucy Liu as she's like dressed up in punk rock kind of makeup. She's the guy. She's the one who during that same montage that says a guy with a guy with eight hands, huh? Sounds pretty hot. Oh, Lucy Lawless. Lucy Lawless. I said Lucy I was like, Fuck. Uh, yeah. Lucy Lawless. <laughs> yeah, Lucy Lawless. I mentioned Lu- Lucy yeah, Lawless. Oh, did you say her? I, did, I, I yeah. didn't hear you say her. But yeah, she's married to Rob uh, Rob Tapper, right? Oh, that's right. Yeah. Oh. So, yeah. Fun fact related to him, just now that I'm thinking about it, that scene where the guy gets thrown out uh, by Macho Man and he like goes through the table and he's like screaming like, my I can't legs, feel my legs. legs. Yeah, yeah. Apparently that is legit. Like it came from Rob Tapper. Like, as he was uh, uh, driving in Detroit, he passed an accident one day, and the gurney was taking someone, or you know, the stretcher was taking oh, someone. No. And he was screaming that. He told Sam that story, so they used it in the movie. They use it as a joke in their movie. <laughs> <laughs> that, guy, that guy's life is ruined. <laughs> I want to talk about still with the cast, just real quick, if we could, because I promised I would come back to this. All right. Um, James Franco. Let's talk about James Franco for a second, because we, we must. We only if we only <laughs> skimmed over him, and I feel like you're dodging James Franco. <laughs> and I mean, not really. There weren't any like really fun. He auditioned to be Peter Parker. He didn't get the job, but they gave him Harry. That was how he got the role in the movie. Now, what you're going to talk about is probably the drama, the 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 love triangle. How are uh, we not going to talk about this? <laughs> All right. <go. laughs> so, uh, so as Justin mentioned earlier, uh, during the filming of this movie, uh, Kristen Dunst and Tobey Maguire developed feelings for each other. And much like the movie, apparently there was some feelings from James Franco for Kristen Dunst, or he just wanted to bang her or, you know, cause that I'll try to do this as objectively as possible, but like, <laughs> we all know it, what we know about James Franco. Okay. <laughs> <right>. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you look back on this stuff now and you're like, man, you hear some stories and you're like, was he being a dick? He was probably being a dick. Like, yeah. like for instance, <laughs> like uh, the hospital scene where he comes in with Aunt May. Uh, if you go back and watch that scene, he has black hair, not hair that matches Norman Osborn, hmm. uh, which was discussed prior to the movie starting. He showed up on set with black hair. <laughs> and 
they had no choice but to go ahead and shoot him with black hair. And Sam's like, I don't know what he was thinking. He just decided to show up with not the right hair color that day. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> But uh, yeah, so he also goes on set and is apparently also very jealous of Toby Maguire's relationship with Sam Raimi. Sam Raimi seems to have a lot of affection for Toby. This feels like... So Sam Raimi's Norman Osborn. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, anyway, uh, the other thing is, is he starts telling people on set, he's just like, Tobey Maguire kind of looks like a frog. (laughs) 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 So this pisses off Toby. And then he's hitting on Kirsten Dunst. And like trying to get with her after apparent supposedly after he knows that she is with Toby. And so these guys develop legit friction with each other mm. on the film. Mm. Um, they had, they had a conflict. Yeah. Uh, according to him, he says, uh, Toby and Kristen became a couple around that time. Uh, I had a crush on Kristen, but I think I was upset about that. Um, but Toby is mad for a little bit. It was the second movie we get, he got over it. I think Toby and Kirsten had broken up by the second movie. Yeah, they had. They only yeah. dated for like a year. Yeah, he said. He, uh, Sam said uh, they apparently dated, uh, and then he said they eventually broke up before the second movie. I was concerned they wouldn't get the same chemistry back, but that was just me. He was like, uh, they they did fine. Um, but yeah, he says uh, they they something in this interview I was reading. They told uh, Sam about all this and he he had no idea about it that these two like were like pissed at each other or anything <laughs> and uh he said oh wow i didn't know that gee that's like the movie <laughs> and mcguire still got cursed just like the script said he would <laughs> uh, I, lo- I love sam raimi so much he's like your everyone it's like he's like your favorite uncle <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> oh man so while all this was happening, the casting, I mean, while they were you know, figuring out who's going to play who, uh, who's going to be in what role, uh, while, you know, Raimi's trying to get the studio to be on board with Maguire, while they're hunting for the perfect actor to play, you know, Norman Osborn, Green Goblin, they'd already begun pre-production. That's how these big things, these big movies work. They've got to go ahead and get started on all this stuff because it takes a really long time. Uh, and one of the major aspects of the comic that needed to be perfect, that they're already trying to kind of work on, was, of course, Spider-Man's iconic costume. Mm. And, you know, it might seem simple. Just, you know, just copy the comic, right? Uh, That's easier said than done. Because in order for a costume to really work on a movie screen, it's got to have, you know, it can't just be a guy in spandex. It's got to be, have a little more texture, a little more subtlety than what you might see in, like, a a straight-up comic book drawing. Yeah, and and this is nothing new. I mean, looking back at even, you know, especially the X-Men, who, if you know the comics where they're all in, you know, bright yellow and blue spandex. And then this first movie, they're all in black leather gear. Like Mm -hmm. (laughs) it can be, it can be a bit jarring for those hardcore fans, but you know, when you go into the nitty gritty of those and you kind of hear, well, we did build those suits and they looked ridiculous. So we had to go with something else. Well, I mean, they can't, it obviously can be done because it's done Oh yeah, here, you know, uh, and the guy that Sam Raimi hired to tackle this project was three-time Academy Award-winning costume designer, James Atchison. I mean, if uh, you're, uh, you're going to get somebody, get somebody who's won an Academy Award for it. Three Academy <laughs> Awards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Atchison is kind of a legend in his field. He's a British designer who got his start working for the BBC. He worked on Doctor Who during the nice. time of the third Doctor and the fourth Doctor. Uh, 
he even designed the signature costume of the fourth doctor uh, played by Tom Baker. That's the one with the giant scarf, you know, and the, and the hat, a uh, very oh, yeah. iconic look for the doctor. Uh, then he transitioned to film, and after transitioning to film, he worked with Terry Gilliam on uh, Time Bandits and Brazil, as well as with Gilliam's fellow Python, Terry Jones, on Monty Python's Meaning of Life and The Wind and the Willows. Uh, his other credits prior to Spider-Man included uh, Highlander, the, the Man of the Iron Mask, and Kenneth Branagh's Frankenstein. I, I absolutely adore Highlander, and there's some, uh, some really great iconic looks in there uh, for the costumes. And to be honest, like, I think a lot of people shit on Kenneth Branagh's Frankenstein. I really enjoy it. It's really great. Um, I think it's fine. I don't think it deserves the hate that it got, but, you know. Yeah, it doesn't deserve the hate. I think there's a lot of really good stuff in there. Anyways, I, I, I don't want to go off on a Frankenstein thing. We've This is the, <laughs> this is the second time we veered towards the Universal Monsters, so. Well, you know, after, <laughs> after working on Spider-Man, Atchison worked on, he got other comic book jobs. Like, he ended up working on uh, Daredevil and on uh, Superman Returns with oh, nice. Brian Singer. Yeah, so he, he kind of became a like a comic book movie designer because he nailed this one so well i was gonna know? say both of those costumes i won't speak to the movies but both of those costumes are really solid yeah he kind of does the same thing with superman returns that he does here which adds just takes the iconic look and adds some texture and stuff yeah. to it you know yeah. so while Raimi was searching for the perfect peter parker atchison was tasked with the design of that spider-man suit all while not knowing who would fill the suit or what their body type might be, which has got to be very difficult for a costume designer, especially for a costume that is skin tight. Yeah. Uh, so at one point during the design process, he filled a room with a studio with 20 men of all shapes and sizes, all of them wearing nothing but thongs and speedos. And then he'd invite Sam Raimi over uh, to the costume department. He demanded that Sam Raimi choose his preferred Spider-Man body type. So you've got... Uh, Sam Raimi, I just picture this like Sam Raimi walking in the door uh, and all of a sudden it looks like the pit crew from RuPaul's Drag Race just standing up <laughs> against the wall, like you know, mostly naked. Uh, and he said, uh, Atchison, here, here's a quote from him. I've never seen such an embarrassed director. And he chose one guy. He was a really beautiful looking man, but he was about six foot two and built like a shithouse door. <laughs> so he picks this like big buff dude who's six foot two. And then Raimi went on to cast Toby Maguire, who is five foot eight. <laughs> uh, so uh, Sam's like, why are you doing this? And he's just like, because I can. <laughs> uh, several designs were thrown uh, uh, around you know design ideas were thrown around uh, atchison was particularly fond of the idea of having a red emblem on a black costume uh which isn't inherently a bad idea but if you're wanting to go for classic spider-man it's not exactly the look you know right As, well it's the look that eventually wound up i mean sort of with uh miles morales right right gary yeah kind of but the final product looks you know, remarkably close to the costume from the comics, only with some dimensionality and texture added to it and a slightly more subtle approach to the colorization. So then for Spider-Man's mask, Atchison created a, an inner mask inside of every mask that was made so that no matter who was performing as Spider-Man in a particular scene, whether it be Maguire or a stuntman, the character would always have the same profile. I mean, Spider-Man has that, that kind of iconic, you know, uh, head shape. So you got to kind of keep yeah. that. So essentially there's like a small, almost like a helmet, like a small helmet inside of the mask. And all in all, they constructed 23 suits for the production at a cost of $100,000 a piece. Oof. 
that inner that inner mask uh detail that it's really smart because i mean were, like you clever. said yeah because you got this it's a skin it's skin tight and you know with some of these actors who have very distinct uh facial features i mean it's easy to get some athlete who you know stunt doubles it's easy to it's easy to find someone who kind of looks like toby but you know for that uh very distinct profile of the face yeah that's that's a pretty smart move there yeah yeah the main thing i noticed about toby mcguire in his spider-man outfit is he did talk about how uh he had to have discussions with them because he needed to pee sometimes and there was nowhere <laughs> to pee like they didn't want to put anything on it so he had them install zippers finally but then they would constantly break and so then they'd have to stitch him into it um but yeah, it, it said his whole process to go to the bathroom was like 30 minutes. Jeez. I mean, the, the costumes are pretty impressive because they also did this screen printing technique on it, like multiple layers of screen printing to get not just the texture of, you know, that we see on the, the suit, but actually the muscle that you see on the suit. Like you can see uh, like like the muscles on the on Spider-Man's side and stuff and on his legs, like that's that's actually painted on essentially to the suit, but they had to screen print it in a way to where no matter how the suit stretched, it would still be visible and not showed it. So it, it wouldn't look like, well, it, so it wouldn't look like muscles painted on fabric, basically. Uh, so it was a very complicated uh, process to get that screen printed that way, but it looks incredible, I think. Now, one element of the film that Atchison did not design, and he will be absolutely absolutely adamant that he had no hand in designing it was the mask of the green goblin uh atchison in fact seems to really hate this mask and he hates that it's in a movie that has his name on it as a costume designer but apparently an outside company had already been contracted to design it before atchison had ever been hired so the mask was created by a company called Amalgamated Dynamics, although their original design looked much different. Uh, the initial goblin mask that they created was an animatronic mask that would have fully covered the actor's face, and it looked pretty accurate to the character's comic book look. Like, it looked like it, uh, it was supposed to be his face and not not a mask necessarily, you know. Uh, and Raimi would later choose not to use the animatronic. I, I'm not sure why or what his reasoning was. My guess is that you know, it's animatronic, so there has to be something to control it. So there was this big, like, shoulder harness that had to come out the back. So it probably limited the how the act how the actor wearing it could move physically within a scene. Uh, that would be my guess as to why Raimi wouldn't want to use it. But it, for whatever reason, he decided not to go that route. And the company went about designing the piece that would end up being used in the final film. It's because Sam's random. Like, Laura Ziskin has a story about, like, one day Sam just walked in and said... Green Goblin needs a trident. They're <laughs> <laughs> like, what? And he's like, I want him to have a trident. <laughs> and so they give him one. The only thing I could find on it, uh, there were some screen tests, you know, like you mentioned, uh, and it's a wicked looking mask. It, it really, cool really is. It does. <laughs> I don't know how he would talk in it. That made me wonder about it. Yeah, like how that would look. None of the footage that you see has him talking uh, of, of the test footage. So, yeah, but I'm not sure. I did find one interview where somebody said that, um, that they found it unnerving like the mask and that Avi Arad nixed it that he told them hey listen we are trying to sell toys not scare kids <laughs> I mean it's the Green Goblin it's supposed to be unnerving and he does look like the comic book character he's got the red eyes and like I don't know it's pretty cool uh, it, again if I if I can re remember to do so I'll put a link to a uh, a video of some of that footage in the uh 
in the show notes because Amalgamated, uh, that the company that created it, they've got multiple videos on their YouTube channel of of the mask and uh, of their test using it. And it looks really cool, I think. It does yeah. look cool. Supposedly yeah, it the whole costume was like way more bulky originally too and like had a lot of armor on it and stuff, mm-hmm. which I mean, I know it seems like it does now, but supposedly like the way the, the actual suit got, it, it was like bulkier at the time and like Defoe like had them, he was like, you know, I got to do my own stuff. It needs to be more athletic and less like armor. Right, right. Well, filming on Spider-Man commenced in the early months of 2001 uh, at a budget of $139 million. That's a huge budget at this time uh, with a deal that Marvel would get about 7% of the box office, which again, knowing how well this movie does is a pretty good deal for Marvel. Uh, Now, while the film is set in New York, it's a very New York film. Uh, And some exteriors were shot in the city. The majority of the film, including pretty much all of the interiors, uh, was shot in Los Angeles. And uh, a surprising, well, it may be not surprising, but I was surprised when when I found out that uh, a a lot of the locations in the film were shot on sound stages. I mean, I understand why it gives the director a lot more control, uh, you know, of the environment, Uh, the Parker residence, the wrestling auditorium, even the Times Square sequence where Spider-Man and Goblin battle for the first time. That's all shot on sound stages. Uh, That last one kind of makes sense because, you know, the Goblin like destroys an entire building. So that was, so that does, they couldn't exactly do that. Yeah. And, and apparently they tried to get Times Square. They really petitioned to get it for like a weekend and the city mm-hmm. was just not having, not having that. Huh. Yeah. So that set is actually the same place that the wrestling scene is in. Oh, um, really? So it's same exactly the same spot. Yeah. Same yeah. soundstage. I just think that's wicked to think about because it looks really, really good. Yeah. Um, I mean, it looks a little, you can tell that it's on a soundstage i think i think you can tell that whole scene is on a soundstage if you watch enough movies but it's a good looking soundstage i mean it, it feels like they're on a movie set a, a lot of times during it but you're right they do a good enough job with depth like they get those balloons and the balloons are kind of legit and like mm-hmm. then they um uh you know they, i don't know they, they do a good job of making it feel good on the out i think on the outside shots but yeah one thing I think people don't realize that like a lot of the expense with like CG and stuff in this movie goes towards like a lot of the buildings are computer generated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like they're digitally inputting like so much of the uh, city. And that's yeah. just crazy to me. Just like, it's not, you know, because they are in LA. So like, even like during the car chase scene, like, or like Spider-Man is like chasing them, you know, they the, have to make it look like New York. Yeah. They have to make it look like New York, but they're in LA. So like it's some LA buildings and then they'll just like, throw in some new york building yeah. <laughs> uh, uh there's so, one there's 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 one uh other location thing i wanted to mention it's maybe it's a fun fact or or whatever but uh the the lab where peter gets bit by the spider that room was also used as the ballroom in todd mcfarland's spawn wow. where uh spawn comes crashing through the window and confronts jason Wynn for the first time uh, I, re- I recognize the columns. <laughs> well, I'll take that and raise you that the Ooh. Osborne family mansion is used in Batman. I think mm. it's Wayne Manor at one point or something, but nice. they change it. And apparently Danny Elfman, was it Danny Elfman or somebody was like, you should not do this. This is weird. And they're like, well, we'll just redo it. And then like, uh, 
forget who it was like rob tapper or something came in and i don't know sam raimi was just talking about this because he was saying like somebody walked in and was like i want to live here and he's like no this is where the villain lives you don't want to live here (laughs) (laughs) Uh, another scene that was set on the stage was uh the famous upside down kiss scene like the most iconic scene from the movie which tells you a lot about i think this movie that the most iconic scene is like a uh, a romantic scene in a in a superhero movie but it was apparently a pretty miserable scene to film because mcguire's hanging upside down can't breathe because he's got rainwater pouring into his nose the whole time yeah. uh, him and him and kirsten dunce both talk about how awful it was shooting that well scene. he's got he's got the mask pulled up over his nose and it's mm-hmm. wet so he can't breathe so he can only breathe through his mouth yeah he says he like had to like apologize to her and be like i'm I'm sorry, but I'm going to like try to get air out the side of my mouth while we're kissing. Like, you got to bear with me here. But what's crazy about that is like Kirsten uh, just on, on that note is like she talks about how Sam can get you excited about stuff. I mentioned that before, but he knew he knew what he was doing there. Like, because he said he like sat her down and gave her a book. And it was like the book was uh, the 50 uh, shades of gray. Yeah. 50 shades of gray. Uh, no, it was like Hollywood's <laughs> 50 best kisses or something mm, like yeah. that. It was some some book like that. And he had her look through that. And he's like, we're going to do this. And like, you know, and so yeah. he like pumped her up for the thing. He's like, this is what we're doing here. He's like, we're going to mm. we're going to be in this version of the book. or whatever. That's cool. That's nice. and, uh, so that was the whole point of that scene. And it's a, it's a really cool like hearing them talk about the scene and and just what went into it but it's yeah they were not it was no not it was not sexy. fun it was, it was not, not sexy, sexy or, or romantic or fun i do remember they did win best kiss at the mtv movie awards though, well so. deserved yeah yeah so another key figure in the making of spider-man uh we already mentioned him briefly during todd's star trek rundown but that's john dykstra the film's visual effects supervisor. If you're a longtime listener of the show, then you've heard that name before. He collaborated with Toby Hooper during Hooper's years with Canon, working uh, on the visual effects for Hooper's Life Force and Invaders from Mars. Uh, that's also not his only claim to fame. Like Todd mentioned, he worked on Star Trek, the motion picture. He also worked on the first Star Wars movie. Uh, you know, so not kind of a big deal. He also worked on a couple other uh, comic book movies before this. Joel Schumacher's batman movies he worked on both of those yeah so unlike many of the other films like the ones that i just mentioned that dykstra had uh, worked on raimi's vision for spider-man included a lot of daytime sequences now daytime visual effect shots require a lot more detail and are much more difficult to pull off because all of your flaws are going to be on full display as opposed to you know batman where it's always dark or it's always raining there's a lot to hide behind and spider-man uh, that's not the case. You're in full daylight and full sunlight. Uh, speaking of those daylight shots, before we move on, I think we do need to mention Spider-Man cinematographer, the guy who's capturing all of those shots. Uh, it's a guy named Don Burgess. He's a, he was a regular of Robert Zemeckis, who had worked on he'd worked with Zemeckis on Forrest Gump, Contact, What Lies Beneath, and Castaway, all prior to working on Spider-Man. He worked nice. on Zemeckis more recently too. I think he even did like. I think he did Pinocchio, like the most recent Zemeckis movie. I know he, oh, wow. I know he did The Witches for Zemeckis, which came out a couple years ago. Uh, but yeah, so he, it's the only time he's ever worked with Sam Raimi. It's weird. I was looking through this, and you know, Sam Raimi works with the same people a lot, but he does not work with the same cinematographers a lot. I, I wonder hmm. if like all of his crazy camera setups are just too much for some of these guys, where they're like, 
not never again. Like I'm not, this is hard. <laughs> I'm not doing this again. I don't know, but he does. He seems to go through cinematographers a lot. So Sam Raimi wanted Bill Pope uh, for this movie. Like he tried to get Bill Pope, but he was working on the matrix reloaded. And then it was already signed off for the matrix revolutions too. So like he was like tied up in all of that apparently and couldn't make it there. And he, then he chose uh, Peter Deming. Uh, but Peter Deming was, uh, he ended up taking Austin Powers gold member at the time. We've talked about Peter Deming on the show before as well. But uh, anyway, back to John Dykstra. So uh, Dykstra and his crew tested a lot of different techniques to try to nail Spider-Man swinging scenes. That was kind of the biggest challenge on this movie, effects-wise, was making Spider-Man swing through the city. Uh, they used the old standby of having a human perform in front of a green screen, but found that uh, the movement just wasn't graceful enough for how they envisioned Spider-Man moving. They tried motion capture, a uh, technique that was growing in popularity at the time, but the process uh, at this point in, in its development was not able to account for the physics of the human body, so it wouldn't really work either. Uh, eventually, Dykstra suggested to Raimi that they could pull off the Spider-Man swinging sequences by fully animating it using CGI. They did this using a technique called keyframe animation, which is a time-consuming frame-by-frame animation process. It's a very tedious process, but it allows uh, more control and more fluidity with your actions. So to sell this technique to the studio, because he had to kind of sell it to them because it's going to require a lot of manpower and a lot of hours uh, to get it done. Uh, so to, to sell them on it, Dykstra filmed an actual stuntman crawling up the side of a building. Then he built an animated version of Spider-Man doing the exact same movements, but he didn't tell the studio executives which one was real and which one was CGI. Uh, so they watched them side by side, and when they couldn't tell the difference, that was it. Like, Dykstra got the okay to start using the process. And in the end, it took 200 technicians to create over 500 CGI shots of Spider-Man in the movie. Ooh, that is insane. Um, there is a... Um great story from Laura Ziskin. One, one of the ones that is, is good, uh, that, that or not one of the ones that is good. No, a good one to tell from Laura Ziskin is that she had to get them more money because they were, they were, uh, running out and she had dealt with studio so much. She's like, give me this. And she got some of the shots of Toby climbing on the wall and, uh, um, swinging, I guess. And, uh, she said she scheduled a meeting um, and took Sam there. I was like, this'll, this'll do it. And they were like that. Basically she took them into the meeting and like showed them the scenes. Like, look at this, this is what Toby's doing. So you can kind of see where we're at and how it's looking and blah, blah, blah. And it said the studio guys like watched it. And we're like, this is bullshit. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> Sam's like, Oh no. She's like, hang on. And he's like, this is not Toby McGuire. This is a stunt man. And, um, <laughs> but it was, uh, all this, it was all CG apparently like what oh. they had and stuff. And, uh, <laughs> And so they were like, she's like, we got him. That's cool. We got him. <laughs> <laughs> well, some of the film's other effects built on the progress made in the realm of CGI on films like The Matrix. Uh, for instance, that scene in the high school right after Peter's got his new powers, where we see his spidey sense in use for the first time, you know, where you see the spitball and the uh, the paper airplane and stuff. That's all kind of um, a an evolution of The Matrix's bullet time effect. Oh, yeah, that, we, that makes sense. That, that's kind of what they're doing there. So how do you guys think that the effects in the movie have held up? I mean, this movie is 20, well, 20 years of, as of last year. So 21 years old now. And a lot of times, especially CGI doesn't always hold up. How do you think the CGI or the effects in general hold up in this movie now? 
it's tough. Like, I, I think, I mean, personally, I think it's fine. Like, I think it, it holds up fine. Um, I, I mean, obviously there are some times you're going to notice that it's not mm-hmm. legit, but I don't think it ever is enough to take me out of the movie. Yeah. Uh, actually what's weird is like the, the pop, the scene that I've always had the most trouble with is him running across the rooftops. Mm-hmm. And I think he looks kind of goofy. And then I'm like, this is a whole CGI sequence or something. I'm like, this is kind of dumb. But then in the commentary, Toby's talking about, uh, no, that's me. Like I was on a treadmill and they like had me wired to a harness. And like I would have to run on the treadmill and they'd jerk me up and like around and stuff. And I'm like, I don't, I think there still... cannot be. No, like, I think there's still some CGI in there. There's, there's no, there's a hundred percent some <laughs> CGI in there, but I, I think maybe he's right. Like, and I thought, I thought that whole section was like, just like a CG weird thing. Yeah. Cause that whole section to me, that's, that's the part that stands out to me when I watch it as being kind of janky. Uh, there's a, like this feels like you're watching the lawnmower man sometimes <laughs> like, or, or like you're, or I don't know. There's like a, a weird floppiness. <laughs> well there is yeah there's a weird floppy i don't know how else to describe it there's a floppiness to it that makes me feel like i'm playing like a sega dreamcast game sometimes well well, there's this weirdness too like in the first car chase scene like where he goes and he like jump he's on the bus or something or truck and jumps over the bridge but his like body flings in such a way that you're just like no that is not how you would jump right that's well (laughs) granted in that in that scene peter's still learning to use his powers he's still kind of bad at it you know and he gets better as the movie goes on um i do think that it's i mean it's unfar to judge cgi in a movie that's more than two decades old because now we have the advantage of seeing how the form would evolve but i think for the most part the effects have held up minus some of the stuff that we we pointed out i i think most of them have held up i mean some of the swinging sequences, it's clearly CGI, but it's pretty good CGI, you know? Yeah, no, well, that's what I mean. I don't think anything takes me out of it. Like, I think it all pretty well works. And the jankiest stuff, like you're talking about, yeah, is the early stuff for him mm-hmm. where he is going to be weirder. I mean... Like that you know, final sing- swinging sequence at the very end of the movie, the kind of coda at the end, where Spider-Man knows what he's doing is spectacular. I mean, it's, a, it's an incredible sequence. Well, and they say, like the 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 guys say like sam came in and was like i need the best animation you've ever done in your life like i yeah. need i need a sequence that is this and that and that by far they say is the scene that took the longest to put together well, like they yeah, worked hard but it shows that. but it but, shows. but it does it show great. yeah it is it is it's pretty flawless like just that scene is is great well and i th- i think i recall hearing them it, i can't remember if it was a commentary or behind the scenes type thing but i think they said that they wanted they wanted it to they wanted the cinematography and the look of it to progress along with peter so those first scenes look like shit <laughs> because peter's shit and well then i mean that, i think by, that would be that more the final movement. it's just like, like it you know they got the camera movement along with the animation that just really sells it and i can't imagine them intentionally like making bad bad effects i think (laughs) what you're thinking of todd is using like certain techniques though that yeah they definitely do in one of the commentaries talk about and i think this was ramey talking about that they um or maybe it was the it doesn't matter anyway the point is is i think what you're thinking of is they were talking about the way the camera moves with spider-man 
that's yeah that's what i mean yeah and they were saying like at first like because he's jerkier they wanted to make it like there's a guy swinging with him and going with him but who's at the uh, same level as him yeah (laughs) and uh that makes sense and they were talking about you know and it's tough because you can't have like they were saying like usually you can have him coming in and going out it's never like you know staying with him so that was like a tougher part that was all for the end Mm. uh but they um but yeah, there was something that they were talking about, like the first one, when he's weirder and unsure and like mm-hmm. tried to figure it out. They wanted the camera to also kind of feel that way, too. Like, yeah, yeah. That it, yeah. That it couldn't keep up with him properly. I had that sort of thing. Yeah. And, and Justin, you, you hit the nail on the head earlier. There's a couple parts where it's like, eh, this feels a little video gamey, but like there the part that sells it for me, I, I know I'm I'm hammering on like the audio type stuff here but i rem- i distinctly remember sitting in the theater and there's that part where he just left uh he just saved uh mary jane he put her down on the roof of uh 30 rock and then he jumps off and swings off that part where he swings off and he swing and you hear him woohoo and then then he runs along the side of the building and you hear his footfalls that. on the Little glass. pitter-patter. Yeah. <laughs> I, that part to me sold it. I was like, Toby Maguire is swinging around New York city. That's, yeah. that's real. Uh, yeah, so, that was yeah. apparently an, like a, an animator, like what, just one of the animators of the thing that just had that idea is like, Oh, sometimes we get close to the building and you should like run along the building. I love know? that. Like, that's and, fun. Yeah. and I was yeah. like, man, I that's never thought of that. That's, yeah. that's a cool thing. <laughs> and, and again, that, yeah, that audio of his footfalls on that glass really helps sell that moment. I think. Speaking of audio, I think one of my favorite dumb little moments of the movie is after him and Goblin fight at the Times Square and Goblin is you know, smoking off in the background. We'll meet again, Spider-Man. Yeah, it's, right. it's such a it's such a, co- a dumb little goofy comic book moment, and it is. I love it. It's it's perfect. Uh, but the CGI, I think the honestly, I just thought about it. But the worst, probably the worst moment of CGI in the movie is also during that scene where the Goblin throws his little bomb and the the guys turn into skeletons. Oh yeah, yeah, it's that's awful. Oh, because that's here's the thing: the most cartoony for sure. Because it looks fucking terrible uh and i don't know how a movie that looks this good in general how they like how anyone signed off on that because the thing is the technology existed blade did it three years earlier four years earlier uh <laughs> the exact same thing and it looks good you know yeah, I mean, also it looks was, better i was also reading internet commentary in some site and somebody was like man he should have used that bomb the whole time yeah probably <laughs> it's, it seems pretty useful <laughs> well of course it wasn't all cgi uh this is sam raimi after all and sam raimi loves his practical effects he wanted a blend of practical and cgi which meant putting stunt people on cables and high-speed winches to perform as spider-man under the supervision of stunt coordinator jeff haberstadt this also meant that james atchison uh, the costume designer had to figure out how to work harnesses into a spider-man costume which is kind of hard when the costume is skinned tight Mm -hmm. Uh, to figure this out he went uh with the film's effects and costume teams to las vegas they traveled to las vegas to visit the headquarters of a company it's a really stupid company name but it's called climbing sutra uh they specialized in the manufacturing of -of state-of-the-art theatrical harnesses that were used in productions like cirque du soleil hence having their headquarters based in las vegas Uh, the teams met with climbing sutra's founder a guy named todd Rinchler, about creating a harness for spider-man that could uh, easily be hidden 
I looked into this a little bit. I actually found their, their website, the, the Climbing Sutures website, is pretty interesting uh, the, how they got into this because they, they, this wasn't Rentschler's only foray into filmmaking. I mean, his company was not founded to make harnesses for movies. They were originally founded to create climbing harnesses. But after being hired to create harnesses for Cirque du Soleil, he found himself in the stunt harness business. And he would later contribute to the Bourne series, uh, the Fast and Furious movies, the Hunger Games movies, uh, Christopher Nolan's Batman trilogy, and all of the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. So like, this is what he does now. He just makes wow. harnesses for movies. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Um, Cirque du Soleil, too, now that I think about it, um, a lot of those performers or some of those performers were the people you saw at the wrestling match, apparently, too. Uh, I looked to see if those were legit wrestlers, but apparently, yeah, uh, Cirque du Soleil performers working with Macho Man, like the guy who can't feel his legs anymore. And yeah, yeah. So on. <laughs> they said Macho yeah. Man came in, by the way, and uh, Sam loved him like Laura Ziskin loved him just because of his voice alone wouldn't yeah. but yeah um, they said that sam was just like well do you, do you have any good ideas for wrestling moves we could do and they say he fucking like did a pile driver to one of the stunt guys there <laughs> they like, like, oh this one will work yeah he, he apparently sure. got injured yeah, the pile driver yeah yeah he apparently got injured during that uh yeah. he wanted to do one of his own stunts and ended up getting hurt yeah, well, it's in the movie. Like he lands on his fucking head. Like yeah. when he gets thrown against the wall. Oh yeah, yeah. I love the idea that this movie treats wrestling like it's real too, and uh, and right. the idea that that you could just Cage! you could just sign up <laughs> to fight the Macho Man. Uh, and <laughs> then, Old Saul is ready. And then all of a sudden, you get in the ring, and surprise, it's a fucking cage match. <laughs> 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 I love that that's the reality in this oh, world. That well, I mean, that's real. the comic book reality, too. I mean, I they have Crusher <laughs> Hogan in the comics. So. Yeah, yeah. So, Gary, do you have any other fun facts or fun stories from the filming we haven't talked about? God, do I. Uh, so... <laughs> He didn't fit in any particular place, so we'll 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 blow through over here, guys. I didn't mention two cameos I wanted to throw out there that we also didn't cover, but uh, Octavia Spencer, by the way, yeah, at the wrestling match, who's uh, gonna Sarah show Cedar. up again and drag me to hell? Remember, oh, yeah. works in the bank. That's yeah. right. And uh, Octavia Spencer, she was uh, Sam Raimi. So Sam Raimi's uh, casting person was uh, Francine Maisler at the time. Octavia Spencer was her assistant. Really? And so that's how she like jumped in here. And probably I'm I don't know, but I'm imagining maybe that's the connection to drag me to hell. Maybe. Um or maybe we like, liked her. Yeah. We're like, how did Octavia Spencer end up here? But yeah. uh, <laughs> there you go. So uh Toby, I also meant to mention this earlier, but Toby had 30 different fittings for that Spidey thing. You talking about all this casting, like the the guys fitting the things on. It's so stupid because this actually relates to a movie I saw earlier with the wife. Uh, who had on this movie and uh, he said they came in, he had to get casted like the actual like casting like, of his body, mm -hmm, like a life cast. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, he said that nobody told him to shave. And so it ripped oh, no. hairs out of his Ooh. body. Like when they were pulling things off. Ooh. And then he was like having to stand nearly naked in front of dozens of people. He was like, luckily I was buff Toby at the time, but not regular Toby. <laughs> <laughs> he was, but it's so funny because the wife was watching Neighbors earlier with Zach Efron mm -hmm. and uh, Seth Rogen. And in a scene there, they all take casts of their penises to make dildos. And uh, the one guy is like, 
they were like, uh, all right, everybody pull off. He's like, man, it's stuck to my pews. They're like, we told you to shave. He's like, I shaved. Like, look at my face. They're like, not your face, bro. <laughs> but yeah, and it pulls off all of his pubes. Anyway, all right, that aside. Uh, so uh, another interesting, weird thing I thought was that Steve Kutcher was the spider wrangler. Yeah. Uh, man, and he, well, boy, will he talk about it. Because <laughs> I, started, I started watching a... a thing on the blu-ray where they it was like a web diary kind of right, thing right like yeah. it's fucking like 25 minutes of this guy talking about spiders <laughs> <laughs> i i, I the, the weirder part of it that i thought was just that they're filming this m- more in the cold weather than normal and so spiders are summer critters and mm-hmm. uh so he went to new zealand to get the spiders that they use for this fucking movie which I, it just seems like imagine that's your job Imagine you just wipe your ass with cash. Uh, (laughs) Spider spider wrangling money must be good. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, But it was also neat, too, to hear him talk about, like, a little bit about, like, the spider, like, the red and blue spider, which obviously doesn't exist, but they, they, like, knocked it out somehow and then put a, uh, like, a a shell that snaps on its back that they could, like... (laughs) Paint. I'm like Jesus. This is a what? The why spider? They, just use, they got. Well, you have proven that CGI is a thing. Why were? Why would just <laughs> right. do that? Why do you have to dress up a spider in a costume? And then Sam Raimi, which this doesn't surprise me, but originally wanted to use a Black Widow for that part. Of course, <laughs> but they're like, it might kill someone. Sam. Yeah, it, it could murder somebody. <laughs> they're very deadly. Can't <laughs> use a Black Widow. Um, uh, I thought this was neat. Uh, the dream sequence where uh, Spidey, you know, he goes in and, and takes a nap after he gets his power and stuff. There's that weird little that may, also in running for weirdest CGI of the movie, but has that little, you know, the the DNA splices going oh, together. Yeah, yeah. There's like yeah. some random shit and an eyeball that appears out of nowhere. Yeah, very uh, Sam Raimi. Yeah, well, that that eyeball is from a Fulci film that he just threw in there, and uh, the Fulci the does other- like his eyeballs. Yeah, and the other some of the other stuff is from Dark Man. He just I was going to say uh, it's a very cost- Dark Man esque. Like, yeah. yeah, I can see that. Uh, the the costumes that are being drawn on the notepad those were drawn by comic book artist Phil Jimenez. Yeah, uh, they uh, they even gave him the little spider bite on his hand so that it would match Toby's. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, he was I think he was working on DC's Wonder Woman at the time, but uh, he's a he's a famous guy in the comic yeah. book world. Uh, Let's see, where did Sam jump in? Sam jumped in on uh, the guy who shoves Spider-Man after Bruce brings him out, shoves him yeah. through. That's Sam. Sam oh, is it? Get, it? get out there, <laughs> you moron. Would throw him out there. I uh, love it. He's also who's throwing uh, popcorn in Toby Maguire's face, throws rocks at him later <laughs> during the Goblin fight. He loves throwing <laughs> shit at actors. Yeah, this is the, Toby was saying all this. He's like, yeah, Bruce warned me about him and stuff. He's like, yeah, they filmed people like throwing popcorn down from the thing. He's like, but when I was walking down the aisle, Sam Raimi was 100% just there, just like throwing wads of popcorn in my face. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and, and he was, his commentary is with uh, J, uh, uh, J.K. Simmons and uh, he's like, yeah, it's, it's weird. That cigar uh during this part where the goblin comes back in he's like i was smoking a cigar you know he throws the throws cigar it out the window, window yeah man it comes back he was like yeah this is a lit cigar and he's like and it would just uh they throw it back in and we had to apparently redo that scene like 
17 times or something so that he could throw the cigar back through the window at me. <laughs> it was like, and it would land in my lap or on my arm or like wherever else. And, uh, they also say that he was very much that way with Ted Raimi. If you're curious, oh, I bet. he's still, yeah. he's still all that. He said, they said every part with Ted Raimi was like 50 takes. It's his little <laughs> brother. He's got to fuck with him. <laughs> <laughs> Just like, um, uh, for comic book fans, uh, the you know, there's allusions to people in there. I just thought that was neat, just worth mentioning. Uh, he, he talks about Kurt Cotters is gonna fire him or something. They mentioned like Eddie that. Brock, I think, and, at one point. Yeah, there's like Eddie can't get pictures of him or mm-hmm. something. Uh, obviously, Harry's gonna be Green Goblin too, but uh, they there's like little names throughout there. I even think one of the graffiti pieces that is on the wall, uh, I think it's in the when the Mary Jane gets jumped thing. Looks like the vulture. Nobody, I couldn't confirm that anywhere, but I really felt like it looked like the vulture. Mm. Anyway, uh, this is a stupid fun fact, but I'm going to tell you about it. Uh, when Green Goblin first meets Spider-Man, or when Norman Osborn first meets Spider-Man, the first thing he says to him uh, when they're talking is like, impressive. When Green Goblin meets Spider-Man, he says, impressive and ah, I thought that was really yeah. weird it was like their first interactions with each other is him calling him impressive and i never noticed that before it was just it's fun weird. Nice. uh another dumb fun fact how about this uh green goblin kills 12 people in this movie he is the highest ranking villain on murdering people on screen uh, uh what about thanos really? Well, I mean, in, in Spider-Man. Okay. Saying, Spider-Man villain. Yeah. Sp- <laughs> Thanos kills half the universe. <laughs> um, it said the closest maybe Mysterio, but they never like really, the, despite the scale of his attacks, like they never you don't really, ever see it. Yeah. You don't see him yeah. kill anybody or at least that many people. Um, of the 2014 edition of the Pete Holmes show, uh, Joe Manganello or whatever his name is. <laughs> Manganelli or well, yeah. Joe Mangan- it's Joe Manganello. <laughs> Manganello. It's Joe Manganello. He's a big D and D guy. For right. the fight scene, they all two crew members uh offered him one hundred dollars to actually punch Toby Maguire in the face. <laughs> <laughs> Did he do it? He said he feared he would never work again, so he huh. decided against it. <laughs> Probably a good call. It. But he did tell that story. Um, I didn't know about this. Or I didn't. I didn't know this about Sam. But Sam apparently told Laura Ziskin that he loves working with two editors. Have we talked about that? No, but he he does do it regularly. I mean, Bob Morowski, who has been his editor on several on a couple of movies prior to this, was one of the editors on this one. Yeah, she 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 was telling the story that he she asked that why because he wanted two editors and, and he says what he does and uh, he confirmed this in the commentary that he would do this is he like does the movie sends it to the two editors and they both make their own version of it then he watches both back to back and then mushes them together on one huh, interesting what huh. he likes best it's an which interesting I process kind of, I've never heard that before Hugh Jackman was on set supposed to appear as wolverine oh i did read this one what <laughs> yeah. like they couldn't find his costume right they couldn't get his costume from fox <laughs> yeah <laughs> it was, they could have they could have started the uh, mcu what like uh six years earlier yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's super weird if you go back and watch the x-men i think of one of the extras on the dvd i've always remembered this because i remember on the vhs it was like you know wait through the credits it, 
actually, you know, one of those things that is normal now, but yeah, uh, they had a scene where like the X-Men run in on the, at the Statue of Liberty and uh, they're like <laughs> running into face Magneto and like the guys didn't even know it. And they all run in on the scene and Spider-Man runs in with them. Now it's not Toby. <laughs> it's like some guy in a Spider-Man yeah. outfit, but he like runs in and they're like, all right, what's going on or something. And they like, look over and they're all like, what? And, he's I, like, and Spider-Man's like, shit, wrong movie. And he's like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I vaguely remember that. I yeah. remember that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's see here. Uh, also another last random weird fact is that around 36 minutes into the movie uncle ben he's dropping peter off at the library a bus drives by uh with a promotional advertisement for the producers the mel brooks musical uh and uh mel brooks sued sony uh, (laughs) for that for unwanted advertisement in motion picture space wow you're getting a free ad there mel (laughs) (laughs) that was I was like, Idiot. what a weird fucking thing. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, all right. That's all for the fun facts now. All right. Well, Spider-Man concluded filming at the end of June 2001. And then uh, about six weeks later, two commercial airliners flew into the World Trade Center in lower Manhattan on September 11th, 2001. You guys may remember that. I think I heard that. about that. Yeah. yeah, I think I so, heard about that. Yeah. Now, 9-11 changed almost every aspect of our lives i mean every if you especially if you ever wanted to travel anywhere but sam raimi's spider-man uh would also not remain untouched after all this was spider-man city that got attacked right and the world Mm. trade center featured pretty prominently in the film uh it also featured very prominently in the film's marketing one of the film's first teaser posters shows a profile of spider-man's mask where a reflection of the World Trade Center can be seen in his eye. It's a very cool poster. Uh, There was also a teaser trailer that had been specifically created to promote the film that had to be pulled. Uh, In an unusual move, Sony actually opted to film brand new footage for the trailer rather than featuring any scenes from the actual film. So if you've seen this, and it's on YouTube, uh, you're introduced, you don't know that it's a Spider-Man movie. You're just introduced to this scene of these bank robbers doing this like elaborate heist basically yep and they successfully pull off this robber robbery they like they like uh, uh, grappling hook their way out of the building they escape on a helicopter but before they're able to leave new york airspace they're captured by spider-man uh basically you see them flying in a helicopter and then they stop moving the camera zooms out and you see that they're on a giant uh spider web they're tra- the helicopter's trapped in a spider web as it continues to zoom out you see that the spider web is uh hanging between the north and south towers of the world trade center so like it is the moment in that trailer yeah it's a cool so, moment by the it's way. a it's a it cool little a cool trailer moment. yeah it's it is it's a very cool little teaser trailer and then then it shows some like footage of spider-man swinging through the city but after the 9-11 attacks the studio quickly and i think wisely decided to pull all references to the world trade center from all marketing materials uh in the course of my research now me and gary we talked about this uh yesterday or a couple days ago uh I several sources that I read noted that shots of the World Trade Center were digitally removed from the film. But Gary, you actually found that this wasn't the case. Uh, you said that you can actually see the. I I rewatched the movie last night after you told me this, and uh, with the intention of looking for it, and I got so sucked into the movie that I forgot to look for it. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but they actually discuss it in the commentary on the Blu-ray, right? Yeah, um, on the one with the um, 
it's uh, with the CG guys, like the the animators and such. They're talking about it, and they tell the story that uh, they had they had made the trailer, and yeah, that it was you know they figured it would be too painful at the time, so they needed to pull that. But they had made a decision with Sam that they that it would not be removed from any scene in the movie, and uh, and and I don't think it's ever there prominently. Like it's I bet, never. Yeah. I I have a feeling that the the stuff that I read that said that it was removed from the film, I have a feeling that maybe there were some scenes where it was featured prominently that they removed. That yeah. that's my theory. Yeah, maybe. But that's that if it. it's just in the background, it's still there. Yeah, there, there's a scene definitely where like he's first, I, I think when he's first like wall climbing, like it's in the background somewhere like you can, and it's brief and like it's like really quick. They when don't he focus first, on it. Yeah, and when he's uh, swinging around the first time in the costume, I think like he does the scene where he looks up and it reflects in his eyes. Uh, Toby even points it out and mm-hmm. like everything that like there's the World Trade Center, like, you know, as you do now, because that's a, it's so weird. Like now, every time I see a movie in the World Trade Centers on screen, it's like a thing to like point out there's the World Trade yeah. Center. But, uh, but yeah, so it's there. It's in the movie. They weren't, they acted like, at least the animators and stuff acted like, they, they even said there's one scene where it was in the background and not in the background later. And they added it in. They say they, they definitely added it at one point. Interesting. Um, so I don't know. It's, it's uh, weird. yeah, but they were saying that they decided not to take it not out of the movie. Remove that it was it. just part of the history of it or whatever. Yeah. But. yeah. Well, Spider-Man was eventually released. It was originally supposed to re- be released in the summer of, uh, or the summer or the fall of 2001, but then, pre-production or post-production took a little while longer so it eventually got released in may 2002 may 3rd of 2002 and it was an immediate smash hit it grossed 114 million dollars in its opening weekend uh that's huge i mean 2002 especially that is huge numbers uh Mm. everyone loved the film comic book fans casual moviegoers and most critics gave it high praise uh one of my favorite quotes that i found was from jack matthews writing for the new york daily news and he said Spider-Man is an almost perfect extension of the experience of reading comic book adventures. Uh, But, you know, no matter how beloved a movie is at the time of its release, or even in the years since, there's always somebody on the internet who has something negative to say about it. And I'm guessing that Spider-Man is no exception. Yeah, I mean, just like every other movie we've ever found. Uh, you know what? We've talked a long time about this movie. So luckily, there are some people that only have the capability of writing like one sentence at the time, and they all need naps. <laughs> I thought for sure, by the way, that I would just not find any of these one star and less, but there are so many, and they're all dumb. uh but let's start with uh evid one star what a little freak is that that, that's the (laughs) is he referring to uh sam raimi is he referring to that's the that's the mystery that's the mystery yeah well he he does stare at her through the window like yeah. well yeah little... that's one of the antiqu <laughs> the antiquated things about this movie is like that it still thinks that nerds are um 
like sweet and gentle whereas like as we know now a lot of them are just fucking awful uh you know like yeah looking at looking at a, your the girl that you have a crush on like spying on her at her house is not cute like that is yeah. creepy my guy <laughs> yeah the uh there's that and then the uh there was the uh I don't know. I thought about this there Macho Man scene where he's like, nice outfit. Your boyfriend get it for you or did your husband you, did, buy you that or something? Did your husband like, make it for you or something? Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, oh. And I I left it out, but there was definitely like a, one review that was something about like full of homophobia or something. I, was like, I wouldn't I was call like, it full of homophobia. I was like, I it says one, a one line. <laughs> it's one line and this guy talking shit during a wrestling match. So yeah. <laughs> that would probably work on a guy like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, Ducky Feet says, uh, this film smells like one of those ball pits in an indoor playground filled <laughs> with plastic and the faint scent of vomit. <laughs> uh, uh, I don't know. Todd loved it. That's a good one. <laughs> uh, Steven says, uh, one star objectively. Object objectfully. Nope, that's the wrong word. Yeah, that's what it says. <laughs> objectfully. The worst superhero movie I've ever seen. Yeah! <laughs> hey, there we go. Does that, that count, right? Yeah, that counts. That person's not seen very many superhero movies, I'm going to say. <laughs> right. <laughs> Lovely Ayla says, one star. I hate Toby McGuire, you ugly bitch. <laughs> Every, these are these also like letterbox reviews they are all letterbox <laughs> reviews. that's the only place i look this time uh, color night i just like this, this is half star and it gives the this review may contain spoilers warning and the review is oh my god spectacular spider-man is an actual dog shit all of you are crazy fuck you <laughs> Where, uh, there aren't any spoilers there. Wait, wait, space. Yeah. That's the wrong movie. No, I'm thinking. Amazing well, isn't there a cartoon okay. or something? Maybe they're just confused. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, Ashwin Airy says, This is what happens when an NPC tries to write a movie. <laughs> uh, uh, Peyton, she gives it one star and says, This movie reminds me of Twilight, but at least we can admit the Twilight movies were bad. Fanboys pretend like this is the peak of cinema, and still, it's annoying. Grow up. <laughs> Lucy says one star. says, so god-awful. Who wrote this script and who read it and said yes because we need to have a chat? The fact that y'all hated Andrew, would this shit exist? No. Oh, man. No. That's, <laughs> that's fine words. Oh. <laughs> uh, Renee gives it one star and says, what if we turned an incel into a superhero and paid Willem Dafoe to get high on camera for a bit? <laughs> That's good. <laughs> You'd have a five-star movie is what I say. That's right. <laughs> How about Susie with a half star? This is actually four stars, but the pizza I ate while watching the movie sent me to the hospital where I couldn't leave for eight hours, so I think I'm allowed to be petty this one time. <laughs> <laughs> half star from L-O-L-O-L-O-S's I think this qualifies as one of the worst movies ever made yeah! <laughs> wow hey. there it is it sucks a lot like so much Sam Raimi makes good movies this is not one of them so cheesy it's like a soap opera don't recommend that's all one sentence mm. uh, that's a run on sentence 
Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, that's a half star. And his name on Letterbox is Fuckwiz. <laughs> um, Spider, I hardly know her. That's great. That's uh, <laughs> so stupid. <laughs> well, I we're it's we're, we're we're recording much later than we normally do, and we're all old, and I think we're all sleepy. So now we're just being delirious. Yeah. It's got to be that because I'm yep. fucking crying now. Mick <laughs> <laughs> Grimes gives it half star. Honestly, a very good film. Willem Dafoe was the best Green Goblin, but there is one thing I can't fucking stand. MJ. She literally is the physical embodiment of slag. She cheats on Harry in this one, and she cheats on at least one person in the next two. She's a bitch. I wish she fell off that fucking balcony. <laughs> that that person has that person has been hurt. <laughs> that person has been hurt by a woman. Oh my god. Life is a circle gave it a half star. It says, I just harbor so much pure hatred for Toby McGuire. Like I just hate him so much. No explanation. Nope. <laughs> just because. <laughs> uh, half star from Cinemark sponsor. Saw this movie once three years ago. I think I remember something about elder abuse. Kind of funny. <laughs> <laughs> Is that they talking about beating up Willem Dafoe? <laughs> or uh, Aunt May when he uh, like breaks oh, yeah. the house. Yeah. He does. Yeah, he puts her in the hospital. Uh, two more oh no it's it's they're, he's, they're talking about i had to beat i had to beat an old lady with a stick to get these cranberries and then finally shogun rua with the most coherent of any of these i guess with one star gives it dull and dreary with only the occasional glimmer of humor from Raimi, saving it for being total shit I have never thought highly of the Spider-Man comic, but you know what I especially dislike? His boring personal life. And having two wallflowers that can't act in Dunstan McGuire carry a dramatic dialogue-laden scenes must have been a cruel joke. Meanwhile, the villains featured in this installment are lame, and the fights are mailed-in CGI. A few amusing scenes aside, this is a lousy flick. I think that person watched a completely different movie than I did. Uh, <laughs> like, first of all, this this the thing about this is that the scenes are the fight scenes are not all CGI. That's what that's what makes this one distinctive to like the later Marvel movies. I think mm. is that you know it, it there are actual like physical fight scenes. <laughs> this like what the fuck is this guy watching? He watched a different movie. Let's talk a little bit about Spider Man uh, because we've got two sequels coming of varying. Uh, quality uh but <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna talk about the impact that this movie had i mean because it is it is nearly impossible to discuss raimi's spider-man without discussing it in the context of superhero cinema especially within the context of superhero movies that would come after it you know mm. we, we talked about in our last episode how you know blade and x-men they kind of paved the way for spider-man and to an extent but I really think that it is Spider-Man that we can thank for the current landscape of comic book movies more so than those other two. Uh, because while Blade and X-Men have their merits, both of them are pretty good movies, both of those movies seem to be a little bit embarrassed by their comic book origins. Like we talked about the the costumes yeah. before, Todd. Uh, yeah. I mean, the, the movie, uh, the X-Men movie makes that joke about, what well, would you rather be wearing yellow spandex that, you know, it's kind of an, an attempt to distance itself from what 
the movie itself seems to think is just a silly comic book that it's <laughs> that it's based on. Yeah. Uh, but that's not an issue for Spider-Man. Uh, Spider-Man, and, and this is b- fully because of Sam Raimi, I think, uh, the movie fully embraces its comic book origin and it celebrates it. You know, Raimi, if you hear him talk about it in interviews, like he wanted this Spider-Man to look like the comic books. He wanted the red and blue costume. He wanted it mm-hmm. bright and colorful. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's something that we see in the MCU now with, you know, with a few exceptions, uh, but the MCU really embraces the comic books that they're based on. Uh, and although, in my opinion, I, I think the quality of the films in the MCU has started to slip, uh, Marvel Studios does continue to embrace kind of the weirder comic booky corners of their universe. I mean, they're go they're they've straight up gone into weirdo Jack Kirby territory and oh, have yeah. for several years now. But I don't think that any of that would have been possible had Spider Man not done it first. And like Spider Man was the one that came along and said we're based on a colorful comic book that was written for children. <laughs> like, yeah. and, and we're yeah. fine with that. Well, you imagine know? a world like, I mean, there's, there's, you know, the X-Men happened and blade happened and the matrix happened and all of this stuff. Like it would be easy to slip into only dark works. And some could argue yeah. DC maybe did for a while there yeah. like, that that was their thing. It was, but, yeah. but Sam, because you know we've had this conversation a, a ton of times like the, with movies i never thought i would say it about but like and maybe it's my old age or something but where i start to get to like i can't hate on something that's as earnest as it is you know this yeah. movie feels that way that this guy wants the comic book he really wants to give you the comic book the comic book that it was intended to be and not like the modernized i mean modernized in a sense in that the story makes sense but like right uh but not like I've They're not rewriting. Somehow, yeah. Yeah. Make it gritty. Exactly. I mean, I, I, in fact, I think one of the movie's biggest failings is the look of the Green Goblin, which is decidedly different from the comic book character. So it, it's telling, yeah. I think, the, the, the one of the film's biggest flaws is a result of it not embracing an element of the comic books, you know? Yeah. That's um, a good point. It's it's tough. I, I, yeah. I mean, and and that's. And it, and that is yeah the the part where it seems like they felt like they had to ground themselves in reality a yeah. little better yeah and and why like just make it goofy make him a goofy guy in a Halloween mask it's fine <laughs> you know but overall like what do you how do you guys think I know Gary I I know you've already said that you've fallen in love with this movie more than you ever had before you've watched it like five times or something in the last couple of weeks haven't you yeah you have to start <laughs> to appreciate it after a while I think it like forces you. Yeah, but how do you guys think overall that it's held up, you know, 20 years, 20 plus years after the fact? I I I it, I found this very very watchable. And yeah, I mean, aside from aside from Peter using a payphone, like I, I it's it to me, I I feel that I feel like it's kind of timeless. Like it's I, again, it's story about a girl like uh, you know and peter parker has always been one of the most if not the most relatable character in comic book canon so you know when he's got he's got issues he's got problems um you know he's he's trying to be responsible but uh you know this thing that he can't talk about with anybody keeps getting in the way um but this i feel like this film really holds up because it had been a while since I had watched it. And I was like, 
you know, how's it, how's it going to stack up now? And I, uh, you know, outside, yeah. Him, you know, looking through the window at the girl and stuff like that. For the most part, this holds up pretty well. I yeah, really I mean, enjoyed it. It does have some moments that are very 2002. Sure. Um, <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, yeah, remember, yeah, you remember when all of us comic book, comic book guys were really into Macy Gray? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's got a pretty, pretty significant Macy Gray uh, cameo, and it's got a <laughs> song over the end credits by Nickelback. So, yeah. well, listen, I mean, we could do a whole podcast about the soundtrack, but I will say this about Macy Gray first of all, she was booked for the World Unity Festival, so you know, this. That's she was a Columbia recording artist, by the I way. I do love the idea but, that a weapons contractor has been able to shut down Times Square for a free concert uh, featuring Macy Gray, where for some reason they have like Macy's Thanksgiving Day pol- balloons. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> so bizarre. Well, Macy Gray. Duh. Oh, wow. uh, yeah. But uh, the, if you didn't know, she's responsible for the Macy's Day uh, parade so yeah uh, named after her <laughs> l- l- little known fact <laughs> i will say this though toby does tell a story of the commentary that i never thought i would reference but i'm going to now uh he was on tour like for screenings of this movie in europe and macy gray also happened to be touring in europe and he said we kept running into each other <laughs> and uh he's and he mentions he's like columbia recording artist so maybe something to do with that yeah. but he was like uh we would end up hanging out. He was like, and she was really fucking cool. And he's Basically, like, at one great. time I ra- <laughs> ran into her, I was at a bar watching my buddy uh, perform, like just at the bar watching it. And she came in and hung out with me. And then she watched my friend perform and was like, Hey, you're pretty good. Come open up for me. And then invited him on the tour. To open up oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. uh, I mean, I think after, you know, there a lot has happened in comic book movies since the time that this movie was released, mm. obviously. Mm. Uh, and after years of watching these MCU movies that just seem to get bigger and bigger in scope, to me, it was kind of refreshing to revisit this movie, which is comparatively pretty small. Uh, yeah. com- I mean, it didn't feel like it at the time, but compared to what we've seen since it does. I mean, you've got Green Goblin. He's not like trying to rule the world. Honestly, I'm never entirely sure what his actual intentions are yeah. <laughs> like he, he doesn't seems to want to hang on to his company and just do goblin things but he just wants to fuck <laughs> shit up that's, that's all it is it's a, he goes crazy and wants to fuck shit up i'm I mean, just trying to plan. do hood right shit with my friends <laughs> <laughs> you know and when spidey and the goblin fight it isn't some unlike what that last review said it isn't some big cgi filled spectacle it's it feels almost like this intimate hand-to-hand combat as two dudes punching each other through brick walls. You know, yeah, uh, right. that's what it is. It's not this big, crazy thing like you see in all the Marvel movies now, which all end in just a bunch of pixels on screen. Uh, this yeah. is two actors or two stuntmen in a room, in a physical room, knocking each other through brick walls. That's pretty cool. You know, it's not yeah. something that we you see anymore. But yeah, I think even more than that, I mean, that stuff's fun, but I think more than that, what makes this movie work is I think we've kind of been hammering this home, but Raimi just gets what makes Spider-Man work. You know, he's a guy who grew up reading the comics. He, he, he gets, he gets the sense of like the motion of Spider-Man. That's so important that the thrill that the audience is going to get watching Spider-Man th- swing through Manhattan, you know, yeah. and the and him doing the comic book, he poses and things like that while he's doing it. Yeah. Uh, and he gets that 
and he gets that Peter Parker needs to be a dork, needs to be like a, a real nerd. Uh, he he understands also the the need for a comic book to be bright and fun because remember Sam Raimi is an entertainer. He's not mm-hmm. going for dark and drab. He's going for what's going to make the audience clap in their seats when they're watching the movie. You know, yeah. And the movie's not perfect. I mean, we we could we've listed some things that we you know think are flaws in it. The Green Goblin mask is the easiest target, I think. Uh, but it also does like some dumb movie shit where like all the high schoolers look like they're twenty eight years old. Uh, <laughs> It, it asks us to accept the fact that Peter Parker, who seems to be universally loathed by everyone at his high school, it's not like a normal nerd, because normal nerds just find other nerds to hang out with, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, everyone fucking hates Peter Parker, including the bus driver. <laughs> like, everyone except for Mary Jane seems to hate Peter Parker, and yet he is best friends with the school's richest most handsome student. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we're just supposed to like brush that off. Like that's just dumb movie shit, you know? Yeah. Uh, and then of course you, you, we've already talked about it, but some of the effects don't hold up as well as some other ones do, especially the, the stupid skeletons. <laughs> I'll, I'll give, I'll give him that. It's a, it's also a thing I've noticed in the comics as well, because it, it Toby, I don't remember if I said it, but Toby read those because it would be the ones that Sam would have read, you know, like those yeah. early <laughs> issues. But I mean, his schoolmates are dickheads. Every last yeah, one of they're them. They're so mean. They, they are in the <laughs> comics too. So it's just, he, he did, he, 100%, you go back and get, get yourself a Marvel Unlimited uh, subscription like I did, uh, not just for this, but just because I did. It's, it's, I've fucking fallen in love with comics again, and just the fact that I can pull these up and go back to Amazing Spider-Man number one and go through it, it it's so, it's like such a revelation alongside this movie, just like, wow, he really, he did read these the comic. comics he did yeah. The comic. yeah and it's what every comic book nerd wanted from mm-hmm. somebody but just because he went with the organic webs like then the nerds turned on him right yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh but you know all these like, little silly moments that i'm mentioning these aren't necessarily the moments you remember when you think back on the movie you remember like the first time peter uses his webs to swing you know when yep. he's in that chase and he like kind of hesitates on the edge of the building like, that's a great little moment. You remember the wrestling match with Macho Man. Uh, you remember uh, the, uh, I mean, you remember the upside down kiss. I mean, that's that's the moment people think about when they think about this movie is the right. upside down kiss. You remember uh, Peter and Mary Jane talking outside where the uh, you're a lot taller than you look. Like, stuff like that, or those are the moments you remember. Uh, yeah. because Because Raimi has rooted this in character, uh, which is something you can't say for all comic book movies certainly Mm. yeah well can i also say too just jumping in on how much this movie is memed like this movie is like oh the crying peter and yeah yeah like all of that shit that it's so much so that it gets used in no way home or whatever and but it's like i i always feel like memes though happen sometimes because there's like a super relatable moment or gesture or something that's happening and so that you know it's a weird thing to say but it's it's a kind of maybe that's a testament to it too to its timelessness that yeah. like even in the current culture like this movie is super memed 
Yeah. And just like people use I'm still clips from this movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's true. I mean, that, that, I mean, that speaks to people's connection to it as well. I think. Yeah. You know, I mean, you can look back and try to figure out why this movie did as well as it did. And there are a lot of reasons why I think, you know, it being released post nine 11 was probably a big part of its success. Um, it's no coincidence that that big, you know, the shot that we see at the end, that big swinging shot ends with a big American flag billowing behind uh, yeah. Spider-Man. That was intentional oh, yeah. because, I, you know, for people who might not, who are listening to this, who might not be old enough to remember, you know, in the months after nine 11, everyone like there was this this kind of like strange like uber patriotism that was at an all-time high people had flag decals on their cars and little flags the flags flags were everywhere american flags were everywhere uh Mm. but also everyone kind of became a de facto new yorker almost you know yeah Uh, because everyone united behind new york but Raimi plays into that a little bit in this movie you know you've got that scene towards the end where uh the New Yorkers come back and they're like, if you mess with one of us, you mess with all of us, you know? And I think that scene was actually done in reshoots. Yeah. I, um, I was going to say, I heard that it was, but I couldn't ever clarify that for certain. But yeah. Uh, to your point about the American flag, I think like, uh, you know, the funny thing is, it's like, for me, like I've never, you know, despite like the weird discussions that go around it sometimes. I mean, I think it was just like that American flag, like during that time, at least in my memory. And maybe it's one of those things where like some people remember the fifties this way or whatever, but I remember that time, like everybody backed each other up and you just cared about everybody being okay. Yeah, I mean, this was, and that was America and America was New York in that period. Exactly. (laughs) I mean, this felt like the last, this, this moment in time, if and if you remember it felt like one of the last fleeting moments where most Americans actually seemed to be united <laughs> instead of right. divided yeah. uh, you know and and I think that struck a chord with audiences at the time because this movie is a feel good movie i think if this had been a darker you know movie like the you know the batman movies or something like that uh it would not have done as well i think the fact that it was bright and that it was optimistic was that that really like people grasped onto that, you know, yeah. but also, you know, the fact that Sam Raimi's Spider-Man has a humanity to it. That, like I said before, that's often lacking in superhero movies, you know, now some of the Marvel movies, most notably, I think Iron Man and especially the guardians of the galaxy movies have a lot of heart. Mm. Uh, as the MCU has grown, I think it's gotten away from that. And I think it leans a lot more into spectacle. Uh, which is cool to watch, but it doesn't have leave a lasting impression on you. Yeah. But Raimi knows that what makes Spider-Man work and what makes this film work is Peter Parker, not the special effects. Uh, it's, it's the character. I mean, Gary, you said earlier, that's what got him the job, you know, yeah. was that he got Peter Parker. That's what struck a chord with the Sony executives. Yeah. That's uh, what made them buy it. That's what got him yeah. the job. That's what, david kept got about the script mm-hmm. like it's it's, it's it's so weird like that's I mean, what makes cause it, it work. is it, yeah it's probably easy to get caught up in the godlike nature of everything of a superhero dc but the <laughs> you know but but what made marvel different and you can literally read this like i i swear to god it's so it's so, it's been a revelation to me but just the marvel unlimited 
reading those old epi- issues of uh, are they sponsoring this episode they or? are now uh, <laughs> reading the old issues of spider-man like even in the letters column like stan lee or whoever is replying to these letters like saying the same thing like the we want our characters to be real we yeah. want her and, and people writing in saying like oh my mm-hmm. god spider-man couldn't handle this thing because aunt may was sick and yeah. like he had to be there and yeah. like it was just like man these fucking guys in the 60s like that's so cool <laughs> yeah like, well, and just- you know looking at looking at the comic book industry seconds after 9-11 happened you know captain america got relaunched there was the uh very famous black issue of spider-man which is thinking about that yeah yeah it's all it's it's peter at ground zero and it really kind of brought things into focus for well i mean it's aimed at comic book fans but the idea of what a hero was Mm -hmm. and the idea that in this bright world there is darkness you can't have brightness without darkness and i think sam showcases showcases the brightness of this world by having it juxtaposed with some darkness um you know we we spoke earlier about that that look in his eye after he gets to you know say the line back to the guy of uh you know i failed to see how that's my problem or something uh and you know there's that that could have really started him down a dark road Mm -hmm. and not to mention like the weight of having the idea of your actions resulted in the death of of your loved one like yeah. to carry that around uh, is is horrifying and yeah and all of these things i mean you guys are a little bit older than me but this time Thanks period a reminder <laughs> i wasn't going to get into numbers or anything but like i uh 911 happened my senior year so a lot of the guys I play ball with and all that stuff, their their post high school plans changed. A lot of mm-hmm. them went into the military, and you know this came out, you know, just a few months or a few months before that, and uh, it was, yeah, this was this was a really interesting time to be this particular age, a high schooler, you know about to go into the go out into the world and oh just a reminder the world's shit the world is horrible (laughs) have fun well you know the world's horrible and we have not prepared you for it get out of here (laughs) well uh, on a less cynical take well maybe uh, is that what is so sam raby that like the character he would resonate with most is like it's such an abusive and like just a it's it's a it's a beautiful message and a, and a hurtful message and a Sam Raimi message that like, he's like, Peter's like this guy sitting in the car with his uncle and his uncle's like, these are the times where a man is deciding who he's going to be for the rest of his life. He's like trying to tell him that and, mm-hmm. and, and paraphrasing, but it was kind of that, that line. And I know what you're going through and he's like, not exactly what I'm going through, you know, that kind of thing. But Uncle Ben is trying to give him that lesson. And then Peter goes and completely ignores that and then embraces the cool part of being who he is 
instead of the responsible part of who he is and then gets his uncle killed it's such a sam raimi moment like when you think about how much he beats up his actors but if you think about storyline wise too like it's just like a, oh you want to be cocky about this you want to be happy with who you are and celebrate it too much then i'm gonna smack you right in the fucking face yeah and, uh, yeah. and then it's like now now look what happened you don't get to be cocky you don't get to be super over the top about this well but then it's then it's uh setting in motion like the idea that you know peter is now working as spider-man everything he's doing is trying to live up to that that bit of advice you know that he got that he got from uncle ben and that that's one thing i love about Raimi's take on that character because or and Maguire's take on the character because you know he might not have been the quippy New Yorker that a lot of folks thought Spider-Man should be but I think Maguire brings a kind of gentleness to the role Mm. that blends very well with the genuine like sentimentality and earnestness that Raimi brought to the project that's perfectly said because that's that's what I that's what I was talking about earlier just that as I get older maybe or something I, I start to appreciate that more that and and it's there in the comics and it's there in this movie that there's like just an earnestness that like yeah, peter's just he wants to be good and it's easy kid. to slip into the bullshit yeah but and he learns like he the hard way that like you know that even even the slightest like dip into the other side like it, and it costs him and so he's forever working to repay that debt that yeah he caused mm. his uncle's death I mean, yeah. Raimi has this really great knack for finding humanity in his stories, which is a weird thing to say about the guy who made like Evil Dead 2 and Darkman. But um, <laughs> it's true. I mean, go watch. I mean, it, it is there in Darkman. It is there in maybe not Evil Dead 2, but Army of Darkness. Uh, but especially like go watch a simple plan to see him mm-hmm. like at the height of his powers in, in that department. Uh, I, I sent you guys this video. You probably didn't have time to watch it because it's pretty long. But Patrick Willems, a uh, YouTuber that I really enjoy who does these essays of uh, video essays on film he made a great video a while back about how good all of the regular people in Raimi's spider-man movies are uh you know the the, the new yorkers that surround spider-man um and in this first film you get this great montage of new yorkers talking about spider-man one of my favorite sequences in the whole movie because one i think Raimi is really good at montages i mean he does it in several of his movies there's a, a, that great one in and dark man uh quick and the dead has a great one of all the different gunfights you know like he, and i even think i've talked about the scene that he directed for the cohen's in in the hudsucker proxy that montage which is maybe the best scene in the whole movie you know he's just really good at it but what he does here he's got this funny little montage that that functions from a storytelling standpoint to show the audience that uh spidey's fame is kind of growing he's getting better at being a superhero uh but it also is is kind of Raimi grounding his story in a real time in a real place this is not metropolis or gotham this is new york these are real people that he's helping out and it's a it's a reminder that at its heart spider-man is always going to be the friendly neighborhood spider-man just this awkward kid from queens who works at a street level uh, he's not saving the world like he does in the, you know, the Marvel movies and going to fucking space. He's he's helping people from uh, muggers. You know, he's rescuing people from muggers. He's rescuing babies from burning buildings. You know, he's probably helping cats out of trees. <laughs> you know right, right. that, and that all pays off in the end when he needs help. 
because the citizens of the city that he spent the whole movie helping are now in the position to do the same for him. And I think that relationship between Spider-Man and the people around him is really what is really at the heart of the character. And Sam Raimi 100% gets that better than any other filmmaker who has done a Spider-Man movie does. Well, you know, I, that's that's also in the comics too, by the way. Like, and, and, and this wasn't lost on me as a younger man watching it. I remember, I, I don't think I ever like crafted that eloquent of a realization about it, but like it was, it was like, I was like, man, all these Spider-Man movies especially the first and second one, the third one I've only seen in the theaters, but um, that I was like, at the end of these movies, the New Yorkers always help this guy. Like, yeah. They end up saving his ass. <laughs> and like, mm-hmm. uh, um, but, but even in the comics too, like there's, there's always that discussion of like J. Jonah Jameson, like blaming him for bullshit and the New Yorkers, they'll they'll have those conversations in the early comics, like like the New Yorkers saying, like I don't know, like it looked out for me when this happened, you know, right. like oh this ha- I don't I've only ever seen him do this. It's so weird. Like press keeps saying this, but that dude was good to me the other day. Like he looked out for me. Like you know, and yeah, that's kind of interesting. All right, well, guys, I think we're about to wrap things up, but before we do, let's do uh, one of our favorite segments on the show. We're going to get into further viewing. Uh, this one's a little weird because it's part of a franchise that we know has a couple more movies. So, you, uh, you know, so obviously further viewing, the obvious choice is Spider-Man 2. Uh, but aside from Spider-Man 2. Uh, Spider-Man if you, 3. <laughs> if you were yeah. going to if you were going to pair this with another movie. The Amazing Spider-Man. That, and, and that's not a Spider-Man movie. <laughs> <laughs> if you're going to pair it with another movie. Spidey uh, and his friends. Is that, is that, have they made that one yet? Not, I think that Spider-Man. was the the homecoming. company <laughs> <laughs> okay. what would your choice be uh we'll start with you todd what are you going to do as a double feature with you, you own a movie theater you're showing spider-man what's the secret double feature okay secret double feature uh you know lovable nerd um who just trying to do good in the world 1994 directed by mike bender written by J.F. Lawton and Damon Wayans. Oh, God. <laughs> blank man. Blank I, man. I like blank man. I, I, don't, I don't think I don't think it gets enough. Uh, I, don't I mean, I, to be fair, I haven't love. seen it in 20 years, so I, I can't, but I do remember blank man. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think I that's, mean, I think that would be a fun, a fun pairing. Another interesting out of the box choice from Todd. What have you got, Gary? Oh man, I can't beat it. I don't. <laughs> I uh, uh, so I I've got, I guess, uh, who and they're both still superhero movies because I don't know it's a superhero movie. It's hard to think outside of that for yeah thing. But uh, I would go with one just because of me because something resonates there that i think is is really good is uh the original captain america i i i like that story and the, I the think... one from the 90s the albert okay. peon captain america fair enough fair enough <laughs> uh no uh captain, captain america, america the first, the first avenger, first avenger <laughs> is the one i'm thinking of directed by joe johnston mm-hmm. i think it carries the parts I love about Captain America, similarly to what I love about Spider-Man. I always love mm. Steve Rogers just because of this man out of time and the idea that 
the the same earnestness and innocence of like a guy that's just trying to go in and serve like to enter public service and to like be available all he wants is to just serve his country to serve the people uh that he cares about and uh getting these superhuman abilities and blah 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 and anyway i think captain america the first avenger does a really good job of that but yeah, uh, i, I would i would throw that one in there and then i would probably say richard donner's original superman like just yeah. because there's no way that you can't because well, chris Reeves comes there's... off as a real dork <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> well yeah. and, I, and i just mean the earnestness of it is yeah what i, I mean, really want i agree that's that's actually my pick is richard donner superman because nice. of the same thing it's an origin story it's very earnest it very much feels like it is uh you know an adaptation of the comic book mm. and and this movie has some nods to it i mean the, the Biggest one, of course, is Spider Man running and opening up his shirt and showing the emblem. You know, 100%, I mean, that's, that's yeah. definitely Raimi yeah. nodding to Richard Donner Superman. But I agree. I think that, you know, a lot of the other comic book movies that came out in between the two were like, like, I love the Tim Burton Batman movies, but they're very different. They're not the colorful, like, comic book, like, like their origin, you know. That's exactly it. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas color, Richard Donner the, Superman the is. Just- yeah, it's it's a, it feels like a comic book movie. Um, the other one that I kind of thought of just because I thought it was a fun, a little off the wall choice, is a 2006 movie. You you guys might have seen it, uh, or, or 2005 actually. Sky High. Do you guys remember oh Sky God, High? I forgot about that movie. God, I forgot about that. Yeah, God, I, forgot yeah. about that. Um, I just yeah. was thinking of like high school stuff. Like I was thinking of like oh teenagers as superheroes. And Kurt and Russell I, is a gym teacher. Yeah, yeah. Kurt Russell and um, is it uh? kelly preston that's in it with him i think that's right. um but yeah so it, it's a fun little movie and that's what i thought of and because i was the only other like the other superhero teenager movie that came to mind was chronicle but i think that that is too stylistically and tonally different from spider-man yeah that's a little darker mm-hmm. and, it's a little yeah. too dark great movie though but oh, God, would, would not but would not make a good double feature with spider-man whereas sky high is embraces the campy colorful comic booky thing even without being actually based on a comic book but but my number one choice yeah richard donner superman i mean that's that's where you go nice yeah and i'm not i don't know it's weird like i'm not some huge superman fan or anything like that i've never been a fanboy for him but like i I, again i guess the longer it goes along in life I, i appreciate that it's an earnest thing and like even though that like I don't know. Well, I explained before, like Sam Raimi talking about the difference between Spider-Man and Superman, but that how well Donner had done his superhero mm-hmm. and like, you know, even though it was a different thing than whatever. Um, I have this quote from Sam Raimi that I do want to mention um, because I thought it would be good towards the end of the show. Um, but I found a Reddit AMA and ask me anything for those that don't know. Thank, thank you. <laughs> and uh <laughs> Somebody did, uh, like, Raimi did one, and uh, it wasn't too long ago, but somebody asked him, why? Why did you make the Spider-Man movies? Like, really, what did it? And this is his direct quote, which I I loved. He wrote, I directed the first Spider-Man film because I was such a huge fan of Stan Lee's brilliant character. Peter Parker and Spider-Man were an important part of my teenage years. I thought it was very moving how much he sacrificed for others, how hard he worked to protect innocent people, and all the while had to take care of his Aunt May and do his homework to boot. 
his self-sacrifice resonated with me. He was truly a good person. We can identify with characters in a comprehensible story, stories of heroes like Peter Parker. Remind us of what we are capable of. Maybe you're one of those people that like to be reminded of the good you're capable of. Get out there and do something about it. I love that. I love Sam Raimi. Have I said that? <laughs> He's just such a good dude. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I do want to say uh, before we wrap up, and we're about to wrap this up. I know it's a long episode, but hey, it's a lot to talk about with this movie, and we love it, so we love talking about it. But I, I neglected to do this last episode, which was cite a couple of my sources. So I did. I wanted to make sure we did that. A couple of my sources for this episode and the last episode were uh there's a really great book by a guy named sean o'connell he's a film writer he writes for several websites but he did a great book that just came out last year called with great power uh the subtitle is how spider-man conquered hollywood during the golden age of comic book blockbusters uh if you want to read about spider-man you know in more detail than we could go through here uh highly recommend it it i mean like i said it was published just last year so it's all the way up to date on the most recent spider-man movie uh from the mcu but a lot of the stuff that we found uh about the attempts to get spider-man onto the screen uh originated in that book so that book was a great source for especially the last episode uh so in addition to that i'm also using the unseen force the films of Sam Raimi by John Kenneth Muir. We use that as our one of our sources on our uh, our last Sam Raimi series as well. So that's been another good source for this one too, because he he interviews a lot of you know doesn't interview like Tobey Maguire and Sam Raimi, but he does actually interview uh, Willem Dafoe in it. But John Dykstra and and you know the costume designer guy John Atches and guys like that. Uh, he interviews a lot of below the line stuff guys, so you get a lot more insight into stuff from them that you might not get from a typical. Uh, behind the scenes you know documentary or whatever so uh, and that's in addition to of course we listen to commentaries gary listened to, i think three different commentaries on this one read lots of interviews i mean when a movie comes out in the age of the internet it's really easy to find a lot of interviews although it does actually make it a little bit more difficult because it's a lot more to rifle through it is a fucking <laughs> tidal wave flowing at your face of it is. stuff you it's find. almost easier when it's a movie from like the 70s and you can only find like four interviews whereas right. uh on a movie like this, there's like hundreds of them out there. So it's a lot to go through. Uh, but I just wanted to acknowledge those sources because we couldn't do this show without them. You know? So to wrap things up, you know, Spider-Man, when it came out, it would go on to break several records during its theatrical run. I already mentioned it's great opening weekend, $114 million. But it also ended up being the highest one-day haul in history the biggest weekend grosses in history. It broke that record. The fastest movie to ever crack the $100 million mark, which is a record that had previously been held by The Phantom Menace. So it broke all of these records when it came out. Uh, so it would go on to gross over $403 million worldwide, which made it, at the time, the fifth highest grossing movie of all time. So obviously Marvel and Sony they're seeing dollar signs. And with Spider-Man, they had proven that recent comic book hits like Blade and like the X-Men were not flukes at all. Comic book movies could and are big business. And within five days of Spider-Man being released, Sony went ahead and announced a sequel. Spider-Man 2 is coming. Sam Raimi's coming back. 
Uh, Toby McGuire and Kirsten Dunst are under contract, so they're coming back. So it's kind of official that the golden age of comic book movies have begun with this movie. And that's where we're going to pick up on our next episode with Spider-Man 2. If you've been tuning into this episode, be sure to tune into the next with more thrills, chills, and excitement. More spectacular action than you can shake a stick at. Learn how a horse almost defeated Spider-Man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. You guys have anything else to add before we sign off on this one? Nope. All right. Oh, well, good. <laughs> <laughs> where can you guys be found on the Internet? I am at this is Gary Horde. That's all he's got. What do you want me to say? I don't, I don't know. know. It's written in the notes, Gary. I don't see it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I am at this is Gary Horde on Instagram and Twitter. <laughs> no, wait. Am I looking at the wrong one? No, you're looking that, at the right that, one. Yeah, yeah. That's the right one. Right. What's different than that? I'm at this is Gary Horde on everything. Literally yeah. everything. Yeah. Just, he's, this is Gary Horde. That's all we need to know. He's also got some wrestling shit you can look at. That NWA. <laughs> How about you, Todd? June 9th, I'll be headlining a comedy show in Hiawassee, Georgia. If you like Star Trek, I'll be hosting Trek Fest 38 in Riverside, Iowa, June 22nd through 25th. Go to trekfest.org for details. You can find me playing Star Trek Adventures on Cosmic Crit on YouTube. That's at Cosmic Crit. I'm also working my way through the entire Star Trek franchise in chronological order on my show, Computer Resume Podcast, available now wherever you get your podcasts and on social media at Computer Resume. And I'm at Mr. Todd A. Davis on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, and D&D Beyond, as long as they behave themselves. And still plugging your letterbox, it cracks me up. <laughs> <laughs> it's like me plugging my MySpace page, like... like I don't I don't even know the login anymore. Man, I have been all my letterbox. It's also at this is Gary Horn still, by the way. Yeah, this is Gary Horn on Letterbox. I am Justin underscore bishop on Instagram, uh, also on Twitter and also on Letterbox. You can find the show at cinema underscore shot on Instagram and Twitter. We're also on Facebook. Uh, you can check out all of our episodes as well as links to our Discord and all of our merch at cinemashock.net. As always, like, rate, review, and share us with all your friends. And until next time, may the wings of liberty never lose a feather. And be excellent to each other. He asked me what I thought about you. I said, uh, Spider-Man. I said, uh, the great thing about Johnny is when you look in his eyes and he's looking back in yours, everything feels not quite normal. Because you feel stronger and weaker at the same time. You feel excited and at the same time terrified. The truth is, you don't know what you feel, except you know what kind of man you want to be. It's as if you've reached the keys and you weren't ready for it. Or something like that. <laughs> Well, bravo, I guess. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, that's the wrap. That's a wrap. That's a wrap. <laughs>